0: The Bastards has quickly become the most popular Game of Thrones episode of all time. It is a perfect 10 on IMDb with far more votes than even Hardhome got. Most episodes get 12 to 15,000 votes. This one has 80,000 as of this recording, and it's only been a few days. 93% of those voters gave it a 10. It's awfully hard to average a perfect score. Even if you're in the minority, as in you didn't care for this episode, you have the right, you have to acknowledge how hard it is to achieve this kind of popularity. This broke the all time record on IMDb, set by Breaking Bad's episode Ozymandias, which was phenomenal, by the way, uh, which is also a perfect ten after three years. But it has only seventy five thousand votes after those three years, where this episode has eighty in three days. <laughs> So IMDb, of course, is not the be-all, end-all of ratings. For example, The Dark Knight is the fourth most popular movie of all time, (laughs) according to their voters. I like that movie a lot, to be fair.
1: With, for comparison, 1.6 million votes. 1.6 million votes.
0: million votes—a Far, far (laughs) a lot more than 80,000. But, still, I wouldn't call it the fourth best movie of all time, you know. So, uh, you gotta take those ratings with a grain of salt. It's a useful piece of data, but those numbers do tell a story. Uh, there are other numbers that tell a story, and this is less subjective. We haven't found reliable numbers in the cost for this episode, but it would be a shock if it isn't the most expensive episode to date. Not just for Game of Thrones, but for TV. It could easily be the most expensive episode of TV filmed ever. Uh, consider this alone. 86 hours of footage. 70 horses, many of them trained. 25 stuntmen, about 500 extras, compared to about 400 for hard home, 160 tons of gravel four camera crews i mean the scale of the production was larger than hard home or blackwater and that's just this battle because there was marine also that didn't even include marine Uh, although a lot of that was cgi but still that's expensive stuff so on one hand spending a lot of time and money doesn't guarantee quality you know just spending a lot of money doesn't mean it's going to be good on the other hand it certainly helps (laughs) especially when you're aiming for awe And i was awed, no doubt what about you guys
1: yeah i loved it obviously i'm on the episode (laughs)
0: yeah, that's right and I'm
1: not as you might guess I'm not a big battle fan in general I'm not big on action but that was just a really visceral uh, intense experience of a TV show
0: yeah right on what about you guys welcome back Radio Westeros Lady Gwen and the Oak Boy good to have you here again tell us your overall thoughts your initial impressions
2: yeah hello good to be back Uh, it was epic obviously Um, awesome in the true sense of the word it was yeah. really don't have much bad to say about it uh, in terms of spectacle. So.
3: What about you, young boy Hi, really glad to be back. Yeah, it was a wonderful spectacle. It was groundbreaking TV. I thought maybe some of the underpinning story was a little weak in places, but this was a spectacle episode, wasn't it? So uh, we've got to give them points for delivering the awe, and they really did that.
0: Absolutely. And also... um I want to mention a few things before we get started. We've got a couple of notes. This is, despite it being a battle episode, you know, there is a plenty of plot movement. Lots of things happen. There's lots to talk about besides just the scale of the production and, and how popular it was. And I want to give a quick shout out to our History of Westeros Patreon dragon writers. Lord Mark Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, is the writer of Masala Kartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and claws which we will eventually have an image for. Also, Rory the Subduer and Tamer of the Last of Valyria, writer of Vrathrais. Vrathreis, excuse me, that's a hard name to say. <laughs> a silver gold dragon with violet eyes, talons, and horns, as in the colors of old Valyria themselves. I like that. Vrathreis was found already part-grown by Rory amidst the ruins of Valyria. Also, a shout-out to First Sword Jeff Gnarly, the Long Slapper. His... Long Slapper. (laughs) Sorry. First Sword Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper. First Sword of History of Westeros. Excellent. I also want to remind everybody that we're doing a live Q&A tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll have plenty of... You guys have sent us a lot of great questions, and there's no way we can cover them all today. We knew that would be the case, so we're going to set aside some extra time for that tomorrow. And a good chance we'll do something else at the end of the season, after... This big episode coming next week is going to be 69 minutes long, and of course it's the end of the season. Lots of things always happen then, so there'll be more questions after that, and we'll be around to field them. Also, want to mention very something very very cool that we're extremely excited about. Eventually, you'll see it behind us in some form or another in some of our episodes. The new Michael Claradox, Michael Claradox, Michael Clarfield, as in Claradox.de. His new map is out. It's a Giant Essos map. It's totally free. You can download it for free print it out however you want Mm -hmm. It's really incredible. We're gonna post a link in the comments below to See his introduction. He he made a short video Mm -hmm. explaining how to get it the process of making it and you get a shot of it
1: He's doing something very cool where um, for a small fee because obviously he has to host the large files for a small fee You can download the large PSD of it and you can you know put your own gods and goddesses along the top you can change the language to the Thraki or to german or to whatever you can yeah. really change it all which is pretty awesome
0: yeah it's a, it's a it's a downloadable and editable you can download it for free the pay you only have to pay if you want to edit it, and that's just you know to pay for his hosting fees. He's not making any profit off of it. It's just to cover his expenses. So it's a really wonderful thing to give to the community. It's beautiful, and thanks a lot, Michael, for doing that for everyone and for all your hard work. He took he put a lot of work into it, as you'll see in the video if you if you watch it. And I highly recommend that you do. But that's all our we have for announcements. So let's get into it. We'll let's we'll start with where the episode started. Uh, in general, we have few we only have two locations to discuss. Usually we go location to location. It's a little easier this time. So, Marine, of course, start off with Danny and Tyrion. Tyrion mentions Jamie's wildfire story, which hints that Cersei's, I heard a rumor, is just her way of talking to Kyburn and not, you know, not uh, saying that it's actually a rumor. She heard it from Jamie. Tyrion clearly heard it from Jamie as well. So Jamie telling Cersei and and Tyrion, the truth about Ares, it makes sense, of course, but that's not how it is in the books, is it?
3: Yeah, personally, I don't think book Jamie has told Cersei or Tyrion about the truth behind killing Ares in the wildfire. I just got the impression that in the bathhouse scene with Brienne, this was the first time that Jamie had told anyone, and that's why it's monumental for Jamie in his trust of Brienne, and so pivotal for triggering his redemption arc because it's the first time he's trusted anyone, etc. Remember that, as close as Jamie and Cersei are, or were, there's still huge secrets between them. Cersei doesn't seem to have told Jamie about the Valenqua prophecy, which has surely tormented her as much as Jamie's Wildfire secret has tormented him.
0: Yeah, and just to jump in real quick, it's that's a great point to bring up the Valonqar because she does tell Jamie about the Valonqar prophecy in the show, but not in the book. So it's both of these things are parallel. In the book, in the show, she knows they both know each other's secrets. In the books, they don't know either of each other's secrets. So that's a very interesting distinction. And I know, Lady Gwen, you had some thoughts on this as well.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with what Yoke Boy was saying. And I think, you know, isn't that the Point of Jamie's and Cersei's arcs in the books that they've kept these massive secrets from each other and in the end it seems very possible that that's what's going to lead to their mutual destruction at least you know according to some theories so I'm definitely of the opinion that Cersei doesn't know why Jamie killed Eris, and incidentally she definitely doesn't seem to know that he killed Rosart, which would imply that she's ignorant of the wildfire plot and Tyrion in books almost certainly doesn't know. When he talks to Helene in uh, Clash of Kings, Helline tells him about the stock of wildfire from Ares' reign. Uh, there's a quote by rights, they ought to have been destroyed, but so many of our masters were murdered during the sack of King's Landing. <laughs> The few acolytes who remained were unequal to the task, and much of the stock we made for Aerys was lost. Only last year, 200 jars were discovered in a storeroom beneath the Great Sept of Baelor. No one could recall how they came to be there, but I don't need to tell you the High Septon was beside himself with terror." Now, there's a lot there that has to do with Tyrion's brother, Jamie, and Tyrion does not have a single thought that indicates that he knows about the plot, or the presence of the caches, um, the deaths of the pyromancers at his brother's hand. Um, so, um, in spite of the fact that he later thinks King Aerys used his pyromancers to roast the flesh off his enemies, his brother Jamie had told him a few stories about the Mad King. Uh, I don't think there's really any evidence that in Tyrion's or Cersei's thoughts that Jamie ever shared quite all of the information with them in the books.
0: Yeah, the, your, the key phrase there, the key mention in that quote you just listed there was the Great Sept of Baelor that in the books... Helene mentions that they just found those 200 jars of wildfire. So all the show has to do is say, hey, Helene and his guys never found those jars in the show cannon. So there you go. And that's, uh, that's all they need to set that up. Very interesting. Yeah, this, the, the, we'll have a few more things to say about the wildfire plot. As usual, we'll be discussing trailer spoilers after the credits. So we may have a few more things to say about that. We may not. It would be a spoiler of its own, just to say that we're going to talk about it more, in a sense. Mm, Maybe. (laughs) So now Tyrion mentioned something else very important, and this also could relate to the books. He's basically saying that by managing the city well, without slaves, and by showing that it can prosper and work, that that will set an example that no masters are needed. I wonder if, uh, of course, it's also punctuated with the threat of the dragons at the end. It's like, well, it was making it work. Plus, look what happens when you stand up to the dragon. So it's these two things that work together, and I got. It sounds like the sh- the books could go similar in that regard. It makes sense for how she will leave Marine. You know, with the threat of the Masters having dealt them a serious blow, and trying to show Marine as like a beacon of change. You guys think that might go the same way in the books?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's what she is trying to do. She has to set this example.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting too because she's just not there yet. She's in the book. She's you know she's made product. we don't know when she's going to get back. The timing of like what's going to happen. Maybe she'll come back and it'll be similar. There'll be the Battle of Fire will have gone badly, but of course the Battle of Fire is about to play out in the books. And Danny doesn't seem like she'll be back in time for that. So it's gonna there'll be a lot of differences, but it it could wind up in the same place. So let's talk about Daenerys uh, talking to the masters uh, with her with her teammates there, Team Danny, and um, as I, as I said. This will obviously play out much differently. This is kind of simplistic, the way they're handling it here. It's obviously very complicated in the books, all the, the, the politics. Some people just don't even like it. It's too complicated for them. The Miranese Knot, you know, <laughs> isn't in the show.
1: It is. There's a sexier Miranese Knot in the show. You're right. There is a Miranese Knot. It's It's yeah. something else entirely. Yeah. <laughs> I totally
0: forgot about that. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's Dario brought that up, right?
1: The the Miranese knot? Yeah, no. It no. His, who brought that up? That was at The King's Landing brothel. There was a oh, woman. Who the okay. Miranese knot. That's
0: hilarious. Yeah, you're totally right. So the, it's the same point though, the Miranese knot in the show is much much simpler than one of the books. So <laughs> it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just a much simplified version. Now I'm not complaining about making it simple. It's just understandable. They just they don't have time for all the Miranese politics that's in the in the books. So uh, I don't blame them for skipping over it. So they got to do what they can and I think it was a fine job. It was certainly a spectacle. As for the Battle of Fire itself, as we said, it's going to be a lot different book to show, but good place to mention that both of our shows have a Battle of Fire episode. That is, both History of Westeros and Radio Westeros have done a Battle of Fire episode. Mm
2: -hmm. That's right. Combined, we have more than three hours of Battle of Fire for you, so if the brief treatment in the show disappointed you... Um, I think we've got it covered. I think so.
0: I think so. Now, a couple other underlying themes here. Danny seems to have a pretty solid control over Drogon at this point. He knows how to let her climb on. He didn't spit flame until he was told to. Seems like he flies nice and smooth to keep her from falling off. Viserion
1: and Rhaegal, too.
0: Yeah, Viserion and Rhaegal, too, because they they were all very just following the leader there. Now, it'll be interesting to see this play out in the books. I think it will happen a lot in early parts of the winds of winter as she gets a little more control we've already seen some of it danny's already has some thoughts on how drogon responds differently than a horse would like when you put you know dig your heel into one flank the horse goes the other way but when you deal your dig your heel into the flank on the dragon it goes that that way it's a it's attack versus um you know predator versus prey response type of thing so there it's already started in the books it's very interesting i think we can see that grow so what I want to bring up is the idea of Tyrion building dragon saddles has been foreshadowed in the books very heavily, and it's also been mentioned in the show. Now, we haven't seen any movement towards that goal. Danny doesn't even need a saddle. Frankly, Danny has been riding her dragon in the books without a saddle either, so that doesn't mean we won't get it. It just hasn't happened yet. So it's a good thing to... It's a small point, but something to think about it might be something that still happens. Yeah... The capturing of the slaver fleet, I think that's also something that will probably happen in the books. Slaver fleets are crewed by slaves, after all. They could rise up. Mm, something along those lines.
2: Oh, yeah. We definitely expect the volunteer fleet will rise for Danny. Um, that is a, the huge fleet that's on the way. And it certainly is not of the question that the Yunkish and the Carthine and the Giscari ships that are already there in the blockade might do as well, especially now with the Iron Fleet penning them in, the dragons are in the sky, the tide of battle is turning, you know, and if they're just following the example of the Valentines, she could end up with a huge, absolutely huge fleet.
3: Yeah, boy, what do you think? Yeah, I just wanted to talk overall about the kind of Miranese scene and the action and stuff. To me, it felt incredibly rushed, especially after the kind of snail's pace of the plots, the, the plots been going forward this season. There was the bombardment of the pyramids, the negotiations with the masters, Danny flying off, Viserion and Rhaegal escaping, the dragons roasting a ship, and the Dothraki riding down the Sons of the Harpy, and this was all in quick succession. I think despite the rushed feeling, the visuals were absolutely stunning. It was very exciting, especially the dragons and the fire cannons in the battle, and the whole thing looked awesome and it was very enjoyable. And the man hours put into making this episode into a kind of blockbuster must be astonishing. I, I'm actually glad that Maureen took these leaps forwards. What I said about it being rushed, I think it needed to be rushed at this stage. I'm, I'm glad that it's reaching a conclusion. It hasn't exactly been the best place the show's gone to with some faltering and weak storylines, I think. But with a solution to the masters and Danny's transportation, I'm really hoping that Danny will be ready to set sail very soon at last. It's, it's
0: shades of Arya's plotline. Some people weren't happy with the time spent in marine and are kind of just ready for it to be over. Well, looks like it's about to be. So if you didn't like marine, well, there's your silver lining. It's mm-hmm. just about done with. There'll be probably a little more next episode. They're not just going to get on ships and leave right away. But it's it's coming soon. I think very soon. Might. Yeah, I'm
1: hoping that's her last shot of the season, is they on those ships.
0: That would be awesome. Great right yeah. if they
1: get out of there this season.
0: Sailing into the sunset, or towards the sunset? Yeah. yeah. Same difference. <laughs> so, now we get the anticipated Danny Theon, Asha, Yara, and Tyrion scene. We had some predictions for what might get discussed, some of that could still happen. We didn't have Tyrion talking about Sansa yet, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so, what about this deal that she makes with Asha and and or Theon in under different circumstances I I don't see Asha and Theon going to Slaver's Bay in the books Mm -hmm. but let's say down fast forward a bit Danny starts to make her moves in Westeros things are going well you know Euron is a clearly a villain she figures that out one way or another because it's kind of (laughs) obvious one way or another she'll realize that maybe and maybe down the line that could happen you know they meet in Westeros Asha says hey I'm the one who wants to make the ironborn you know different so lady gwen you have a few you actually have a quote uh, that that speaks directly to this
2: oh yeah in uh, feast for crows in the at the king's moot asha promised the ironborn a new way of life so here's the quote there she says peace land victory i'll give you sea dragon Point and the stony shore black earth and tall trees and stones enough for every younger son to build the hall We'll have the Northmen, too, as friends to stand with us against the Iron Throne. Your choice is simple. Crown me for peace and victory, or crown my uncle for more war and more defeat. So in spite of the fact that she's talking about standing against the Iron Throne in the books, there is a precedent for um, Asha saying that she's going to lead an Iron Man to something new, which is very similar to what we saw in this scene with Danny. So it could definitely play out that way
0: her and Patreon supporter Anthony Gonzalez asks uh, or suggests the possibility that Theon could take over some of Barristan's role at, not in terms of fighting but in terms of being a bridge from Targaryen to Stark regarding Daenerys. As in, Daenerys still regards the Starks as usurpers or helpers as the usurper's dogs and she doesn't know like we all do, that Ned Stark was a really good guy, a really honorable man that didn't, you know, just rebel for power or ambition. Uh, So, Barristan, we know Barristan thinks very highly of Ned Stark, so we know that there's a good chance that Barristan is the one who's gonna maybe explain this to her and say, look, Ned Stark wasn't a bad guy, blah blah blah. Theon can take over that role. Makes a lot of sense. I really like that thought, Anthony. Good job. I think it could absolutely go this way. In fact, I would call that a good prediction, and I'll back that one myself. I think...
1: uh, Couldn't Tyrion also talk up Ned a little bit?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I I don't know that... I, it's interesting to consider what Tyrion's regard for Ned would be. I'm sure it would be m- mostly positive, but, you know, um, that's a good point. He, he certainly he doesn't mind as well as Theon. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. He could speak that. He could back Theon up, maybe, on that. He's like, yeah, I've heard that Ned was a good guy, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah, That'll be interesting if that happens.
1: Hmm. I had a minor point, but uh, I took notice of the fact that Daenerys got a new dress <laughs> uh, nice. between when uh, she fought them and uh, met with Yara and Theon. She's got like a really Grecian looking uh, dress or I imagine it being like Valerian.
0: They do sometimes. Th- there is a lot of times meaning to the change of dress and clothing, and um, for
1: Daenerys in particular, they put yeah. us uh, for all of them. But um, I think they put a particular amount of thought into her clothing, like from how she wore blue for so long, which drove a lot of us crazy, but it was because she was supporting her Dothraki uh, side of things because of called Drogo, that was his color,
2: oh. and from when
1: she wore white for her purity um, and uh, for ruling there, and now she's into this green Grecian robe-like dress, hmm. anyway, so uh, nice. what, what significance, I think it just shows her being very regal
0: uh, yeah, and you could see the regality when she interacted with the Yara, she was like, what is this outstretched hand, what do I do with this? <laughs> yeah, she was... I shake it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was really
1: robotic and slow yeah. and uh, <laughs> very comedic
0: yeah, that was funny, that was a good moment, she's like I'm a, people kneel before me, I don't, what is this thing what is she doing? <laughs> that was pretty funny, I like that <laughs> So, yeah, definitely still possibility of Theon uh, telling Tyrion about Sansa. I guess that could come later. Uh, Maybe that will help ease things between them a little bit. Tyrion obviously isn't a big fan of Theon at this point. Although I'm sure, I think think the way that scene went, Tyrion probably has a little less anger towards Theon than he might have. I think he probably uh, has a little more respect than he did initially.
1: You know, it wasn't really clear to me. I don't think... That they tell them, I don't think they tell them that uh, Theon doesn't have his penis anymore.
0: They don't. They he, keep he, it he, under wraps. Yeah, he says, does not <laughs> look like you've suffered? And they don't bring up, well, actually, if he just could drop trowel real quick and show, does it but, look like I've suffered now? <laughs> I, I was thinking of uh, Tyrion
1: making a joke about, it. if I could tell you how many men without a penis, have insulted my height. Because, <laughs> you know, Grey Worm, bari. It's true, so. it just
0: goes back to that. <laughs> So what is next for this? As we said, there's a few things we can discuss based on trailers, but there's a lot we can predict without taking the trailers into account at all. I mean, Danny going to Westeros is fairly obvious, but there's still a lot of logistics left, right? The Red Priestesses are still there, you know, we haven't that's still kind of up in the air exactly how that's gonna play out, whether she's gonna bring a lot of them with her or not. And will she who's gonna be in charge of Marine when she leaves? Is, is she gonna leave Miss Sande behind or something like that? I don't think she'll leave Tyrion behind. He he knows Westeros too well. That would be, and he's just such an important, uh, prominent character. Writing him out like that seems really unlikely. It's yeah. got to be possible. Yeah, I
1: feel like Missandei is the best choice, except for the fact that she's not all that respectable by the common people, really, and she she's with Grey Worm. So that would mean you, actually, Daenerys, has to ask Missandei and Grey Worm to split up and. Greyworm's not going to stay there, so...
0: I wouldn't think so either, yeah.
1: I don't know. I, I really don't think Masande is all that likely. Yeah, but I don't, really don't think there's a better option.
0: Yeah, there is no other... They just don't have, like, these extra characters they can <laughs> stick in charge. Like, maybe they have some of the freedmen take over. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't... It's, it's. It's. I'm curious to see how they'll resolve that. They may just kind of gloss over it like they did with the Kingsguard and they some things. They
1: wave at that... that Peasant, not peasant. The lowborn man that survived. <laughs> that the, guy. the <laughs> teacher who guy. He out. No, you know the one that uh, when they.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The one yeah. that the, the slaver that was left. I don't know to his live. name.
1: Yeah. Razdal is one of them. I know. I don't remember the other two though.
0: Yeah, the one who was not killed by Grey Worm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's. Uh, do you guys have any other thoughts on Marine, or should we move on? A lot to come still, so maybe we can. All right. We'll have to see, we need to see the rest of the season to make our, the, our best guesses, but y'all might have something important to say that I forgot to bring up.
1: Uh, no, most of what I have to say will be covered in the overall thoughts at the end of the episode.
0: Great, alright, well let's go on to the north. We'll start with the pre-battle stuff, all the many scenes that happened before the actual battle. A lot of these were very meaningful and important, they are setting up some things for the actual battle and for past it, more importantly. We'll start off with the parlay between John, Sans- Sansi Sansa, and Ramsay. Also, little Liana was there and a few others, but they didn't have any speaking lines. Mean but she mugging. got to frown. Yeah, she was mean mugging. That was a good mean mug. I want to see her on her own TV show. <laughs> so question I have. Interesting, we see John and Ramsay interacting. This is a really big deal. Are they ever gonna interact in the books? They haven't to this point, and I wonder if they ever will.
2: Mm, I don't know you know it's hard to say with uh it seemed like they were about to be interacting um but <laughs> in the books but <laughs> yeah, now you know a, with John's uh caesaring it's very hard to predict uh I wouldn't be surprised what I liked about this scene is that John was clever enough to get Ramsey to show his true stripes that he's a leader not willing to fight for his own men but then he turns around and underestimates him, fails to heed Sansa's warning, and ultimately kind of pulls a Ned Stark, and his honor and devotion to his family end up, or going to, end up getting him in trouble.
0: Yeah, only luck saved him there. <laughs> And being immune to arrows, apparently. <laughs> right. Now there's some there's some planning, which is an important scene here. There's um, John Davos and Tormund, mostly John and Davos talking, and Tormund being having things explained to him, which is done in a humorous way. Uh, same question that I have about John and Ramsay. Will John and Davos ever interact in the books? Good question, I guess. Uh, Certainly, they've interacted a lot in the show. It's easy to forget that they have not interacted in the books at all.
2: Um, We predicted um, in one of our episodes, or The North Remembers, that uh, Davos and several other people might arrive at the wall early in the winds in the wake of John's stabbing. So you could play out similarly as far as John and Davos go, considering the show has changed the sequence of events quite a bit. So, yeah, quite yeah. a bit. So I, that I, does make it harder yeah. to predict. Yeah. yeah, it's it's hard to say. You know, where they just made things up, or did they? You know, did they have foreshadowings or knowledges that we don't possess? So, um, but it's interesting in this uh, in this council where they specifically mention the pincer movement, uh, which was used by Stannis at the wall to defeat the wildlings, uh, which is the reason it comes up there. Perhaps more significantly, one of the earliest recorded uses of this moment movement in real life was the historical Battle of Kenai in the Second Punic War. Everybody's been talking about it, we talked about it last night. Um, this actual battle scene drew quite a lot of inspiration from that real-life battle. But of course, here you have John reassuring Tormund that Ramsay would, just won't be able to use that maneuver, which we should probably just file away under famous last words. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right he just again it's only it's luck that they weren't his last words right. but they will probably remain famous yes. <laughs> so then we after the battle planning we have John and Sansa arguing about Ramsay's character and this is a very interesting scene it's, it's very poignant in some ways Sansa brings up the, why on earth are you not asking me about Ramsay I know I don't know anything about battles but his character is really important his general you know the way he's going to behave as a general is tied to who he is as a person and one of the things I really thought about this, you know, is it's easy to forget how young both of them are. Sansa is, well, John is really young too. Kid Harrington is 29, but John is only around 18. Sophie is 19, but she's playing someone that's a, maybe 15 in the show. It's not clear how old she is, but she's not, I don't think she's 16 yet. And even if she is, that's still really young. Mm. So that's all really important when you judge these guys on their actions, meaning Sansa and John and the decisions they make. We'll be talking about it a lot this episode, but you have, it's really, really important to keep in mind how young they are. And that explains a lot of, you know, being emotional, not being able to handle certain traumas and experiences. I mean, they both had horrible traumas. Yeah. Like, Sansa's to been be honest. raped repeatedly. John was oh. dead. I mean, this is...
1: To be honest, I think they could be 39 and, you know, 30, and it would still be understandable
2: for them to behave in this exact way.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. What do you think, Lady Gwynn?
2: Well, I think, you know, whether people think it's justified or not, they have made a point of showing Sansa's frustration with being ignored when she points out that they need more men and that she hasn't been asked her opinion about Ramsay. And uh, it's worth noting that Sophie Turner commented um, in an interview that um, about the inherent patriarchy of Westeros, noting that that's what prevented Jon from initially seeing Sansa as a competent contributor And she spoke without any hint that Sansa was trying to put one over on Jon or anything like that. She was focused more on the emergence of her female power, which is a theme that we've seen quite a bit in this season. Yeah.
1: You know, uh, one thing that I saw people commenting and made me laugh a little bit, but I think there's a counterpoint to it, which is that Sansa says, you didn't ask me my opinion. Well, he didn't ask Davos and Tormund their opinions. They just gave it. But I think that has to do with the sexism of Westeros that Sansa doesn't feel that she can just start talking in this war council and give her opinion in front of Davos and Tormund unless Jon asks her opinion there. Um, So I think there's a counterpoint to that. I thought it was a funny comment, though. But I also think that... Just the, effect, as the, disease went into, the effect that Sansa's trauma has had on her is just often a little bit brushed aside. And and I'm not just talking about Ramsay, I, although that's a huge part of it, but just, I mean, her whole life since leaving Winterfell. And I think that, yeah, like he said, that's part of why she gets emotional and has this sense of Ramsay planning some sort of trap. I think she's, you know, deep down, she has to have this deep-seated panic and fear that this is going to happen to her again. She says to Jon, you need to, you know, I need to die if you lose, like, not going back to him, basically, and I thought of, during this, I thought of Missandei and Grey Worm, when they're talking to Tyrion, who wants to interact with the Masters and make a deal with them, and that's their tormentors, their own tormentors, who put them through horrible traumas, and they warned Tyrion, they warned him, and I'm sure they had that, like, no, the Masters are coming, and... They did come, and Masande said the Masters have come to take what's theirs, and I'm sure that was a horrible experience for both of them, but then, just like how Sansa got her revenge on Ramsay, Grey Worm was the one to decapitate both of those mas- both of those masters. That's
0: right. Preach. But. I totally agree with that. The the emotional. This is this thing we focus a lot on in history of Westeros podcast in general in the bat in the in the past and now and Radio Westeros. You guys do too. You really when you especially when you focus on individual characters like you all do sometimes or a lot of times. It's really important to get at their psychology. That's a huge driver uh, at people's actions. And I think it's very believable for Sansa and Grey Worm and Missandei to have these strong reactions that from the outside may seem illogical and again and counter to their interests but that's trauma that's how trauma works it makes you do things that aren't necessarily logical and but they are logical in their own way in a in a subconscious sort of way and that you're you know better than anyone what the worst case scenario is with these people you, they've seen them at their worst. They know what they're capable of. Tyrion doesn't know. Jon doesn't know. He doesn't know. Tyrion doesn't know how bad the Slavers can be. Jon doesn't know how bad Ramsay is. And Jon's just like, oh, I've faced worse than Ramsay. I've faced the White Walkers. I faced like, yeah, okay. So in in some ways they're worse, but they're different worse. You they know, don't or toy with they're not yeah, right. The White Walkers don't torture people. The White Walkers don't probably as far as we know they don't use psychology against you. They just they just kill you know <laughs> so it's a totally different sort of enemy so santa had a lot of good points there and a lot of good reasons to feel the way she does okay john and melisandre john tells Melisandra, do not bring me back i think about i think about how that could play out in the books will john have the same sort of fatalism like if i die again don't bring me back i don't want that to happen again what do you think yoke boy
3: Yeah, I think that we could see a similar thing in the books. John kind of fearing to be resurrected again. You know, he is quite mopey anyway, isn't he? (laughs) But I imagine before a battle, the same kind of uh, line could come about. Just speaking about this scene in general, uh, both John and Mel are quite depressed from John, I think we can expect it after what he's been through and he's always been somewhat solemn. But I think we expected Mel to be a bit more confident after the success of the resurrection. But here she's full of confusion and doubt. like We we saw her sit, sitting by her fires before she resurrected John in that time and it was a very similar scene, really. She just sat there next to her, her flames, wasn't she? She's lost her way. And is... And uh, she's even less than complimentary about the Red God, which was a bit of a shocker, I think. Yeah. She's obviously obviously still in disbelief about what happened to Stannis, who she thought was a saviour, reflecting on her own mistakes in interpreting the flames, which is her kind of reason to be in her own mind. And she just might be feeling guilt about Shireen, I think, uh, which we're going to talk about more today. Um, for book readers, will Mel back off her zealotry and love for the Lord of Light in the books like she did in the show? That's a, you know, a question to throw out there for you guys.
0: Yeah, it's not one we can, we can answer. We don't know, obviously. But it's interesting to consider that after, you know, presumably Stannis... It really depends on when Stannis dies in the books. I mean, we don't know for sure that he will. It's a safe guess that he probably will. The circumstances can be a lot different. He, she may not burn... Shireen in the books, it may be Stannis might be the one responsible, or she may do it all herself. It sets up a lot of similar possibilities, but the circumstances are a lot different in which they happen. So, good thing to keep in mind, but it's just a question to throw out there, not one we can actually answer Mm -hmm. ourselves.
1: One interesting note here is that um, that mirror that Melisandre is looking into is the same one from, you know, the scene where we see her true self's uh, Mm. reveal, you know, earlier in the season. Nice. I don't know, interesting, but... um, Another thing that I noticed during this scene was that I thought that Thoros and Beric's conversation with Sandor about why he was alive mirrored this uncertainty as to what purpose someone is brought back for. Thoros and Beric don't know either why, what purpose the Lord of Light has, and Melisandre doesn't know.
0: Yeah, they assume there's a purpose. They assume that there's a, you know, a deity guiding this, and as much as Melisandre has backed off a bit on her zealotry, she's still thinks the Lord of Light is real and in charge and she starts you can see she doesn't quite love him the way she did she's like mm-hmm. well he's the God we have <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely different but you know it's it's I like the parallel there that you brought up with barrack and, and, and Thoros and Sandor not knowing what the purpose is. It's a similar thing John has no idea Mel has no idea they just they're just running with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Davos and Tormund have a very interesting conversation I thought was fairly poignant. Uh, They chat about the leaders that they used to follow. Uh, Mance and Stannis were very different styles of leadership. They both failed, though. And is Jon Snow is not a king, they mention.
2: Is that foreshadowing? Yeah, I think so. Think so? Hmm. Yeah, it was so pointed. I thought it had yeah. to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I also liked um, Davos's comment that Stannis listened to demons, which um, created a little confusion among with with Tormund, who didn't understand the figure of speech. He thought it was very literal. <laughs> but considering uh, what happens a few minutes later, it's probably not too far off the mark, uh, thinking that Stannis listened to demons, at least from Davos' point um, of view.
0: Yes, fire-burning... Children burning demons indeed, mm. or one in particular. Right. <laughs> right. So. Yoke Boy, long predicted. We all predicted this pyre scene, the finding the pyre. It was it was kind of shown in the trailers. We talked about it a lot. So what were your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah,
3: Davos Finding Shireen Stag. Um a long time ago, at this you know, in the early season, a watcher called Lady Storch wrote to us and said this. We were we all loved it, so we all got behind this theory that um, Davos would find the stag and it came to pass. I think it was good writing to use the stag as a device over two seasons like this. It worked well and was somewhat like Danny's Ring which again linked threads over two seasons together and kind of bound them together and uh, in both instances it worked pretty well. This now sets up a serious showdown between Davos and Melisandre, and it's difficult to see how Mel isn't headed for some kind of serious comeuppance at the very least. As you mentioned too, Melisandre may be feeling her own guilt,
0: which may impact her ability to even defend her own decisions. She may be like, "Yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't have done that," you know. She may not have the, the emotional energy to d- dispute the charge. You know, she may be.
3: Yeah, yeah, be, shouldn't have done that. Because I, I've <laughs> always thought that Mel isn't actually evil. She believes what she's doing is right, and she does evil things. But now she's questioning her own faith. She she realizes, you know, you know, I've done this terrible thing. I don't think she's so inhuman that she doesn't care about burning a child it's just she thought that it was gonna have great consequences and it was the god's work and she realizes now it wasn't be very interesting to see mel's demeanor in the next episode
0: yeah that i'm very very interested in that i really wonder what they're going to do with that so one other note um thanks to Lady Ar- Ardros, Mother of Wolves, for catching that the stag, Burn Stag, only had one antler, which might be a little hint throwback to the direwolf stag foreshadowing way back in Season 1, Episode 1, where they find the direwolves for the first time and one of the antlers is broken off inside the mother wolf's neck. Possibly intentional, possibly not. Pretty cool catch either way. I like to pretend those things are intentional, even when we don't know they are or not. And Lady Air er, Airdros is one of our Patreon Northern champions, and it's time to give them a shout-out. So, let's do that. Thanks to Jay Wilson, Winter's King. Stephen Hill, Bastard of the Crag. Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North. Small Paul of House Buckley, the Scourge of Skagos. Winter's King. Nico, the Unknown of House Mormont, Bear Life. Brandon Redbeard of House Brewer. Sworn Smith to House Stark. Grandmaster of the Zithomancers Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. And the aforementioned Lady Airdross, er- mother of wolves. If you want to get a cool title like that, check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com/historyofwesteros. Find your find the title that suits you best. If you want a nickname, make it up yourself, or let us do it for you. Also, you get episodes early, things like that, lots of goodies. So check that out if you get the chance. All right, let's talk about the battle itself. Big stuff. This is where this is the big moment, the big action, where all the money was spent, where all the time was spent. Starts off with, well, we we threw out a few theories earlier in the season about Frick-On, fake Rickon, on and Trick-On.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, the actual Trick-On was this trap. It's yeah. the trap, not the trick. Trap, Rick on. Yeah. Track on Track-On. Trap-On? Track-On. Yeah. Track-Off. Anyway, it was uh, painful, uh, not in the kind of painful that it was bad, but in the painful that no, no, no one wanted to see Rick-On die. We all kind of saw it coming, but... Yeah. You, you don't want it to happen. You. Everyone was yelling zigzag at their screens. Even even the actor, Art Parkinson himself. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Lincoln Naranya, the hedge knight from Sothoryos, known as the Anaconda Knight. And he mentioned something that is on point as far as the way I like to analyze things, which is the music. And there was a bit of a fake out. It was like a triumphant moment when The Last Arrow missed Rickon. And the music reflected that, and then bam, he gets killed like a split second later with another arrow. And it was, oof, that was that was tricky of them. <laughs> trick on. They trick trick arrow. Yeah. Trick arrow. Whatever. Uh, so
1: Rickon never actually got any lines this season. They no, saved some didn't. some cash there, maybe.
0: <laughs> he he grunted and moaned and, and, and uh, as he's running made some I'm sounds, defiant. but yeah, it doesn't count as lines. I don't think. Uh, he's
3: the only person who has less lines than Hodor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's funny so what he said he, he tweeted the ar- actor Art Parkinson tweeted had a good run <laughs> <laughs>
1: hashtag shoulda
0: yeah hashtag shoulda zigzagged so <laughs> that that went viral because that was hilarious
3: uh,
0: watching her Bill Sotheby suggests that the burning crosses were range markers at least partially functioned as range markers which is kind of a cool idea funny that we all spent a lot of time guessing at who those bodies might be, and it just didn't matter at all. <laughs> those bodies were complete nobodies, as far as we could tell. So that's funny. It just There's it a bit of a red herring. A flaming herring.
3: Mm.
0: Flaming red herring. What do you guys think about Rickon in the books? Is he going to die? Is he a shaggy dog story? If, let me explain what that means. Shaggy dog story is an old joke where you just tell, you just go on and on about, a shaggy dog about it being really shaggy. Uh, One version of the joke I heard was where you tell a joke where this dog enters, the guy enters his dog in the citywide shaggy dog contest. And the first judge says, that's a shaggy dog. Second judge says, that's the shaggiest dog I've ever seen. Third judge says, that's the shaggiest dog I've ever seen. And you just go on. You repeat that line for city, state, country, planet, solar system, galaxy. You just go on and on. And the punchline is is nothing. It says, finally gets to the universe competition and says, that's not a shaggy dog. And that's it. You just waste all this time building up a story that has that's pointless. That's the whole idea. And so George may have been making a joke from the beginning that Rickon's story is not important. Is what do you guys think?
2: Yeah, I think poor book Rickon is doomed. Uh, been convinced <laughs> of that for a long time. There just there doesn't really seem to be a role for him to play. Recall he's so young in the books. He's uh, maybe five at this point. He's three at the beginning. So. Um, it's hard not to see that there's just a sly play on that Shaggy Dog trope in George's use of that name for the for the direwolf.
0: Yeah, so book readers brace yourselves; You might be seeing something like that in the in the book. I don't know under what circumstances it'll happen. It could be much different. I mean, it feels like the Boltons might be partly, if not entirely, defeated by the time Rickon even shows up at the stage. But that doesn't mean that there's plenty of other ways to die. <laughs> <laughs> a thousand ways to die. A thousand and one. A thousand dies in one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. John, let's talk about the charge. So he he sees the he falls for the trap despite being warned about Sansa, and I don't blame him for that. You know, he's he kind of it's obviously not the best decision. It's a bad decision, but it's you know emotionally, given what we talked about before, the trauma he's been in his he's kind of got a death wish. He doesn't really want to be alive. He's kind of given up. Um so which we set up by how he talked to mel sondra not wanting to be brought back and all that so yoke boy break this down a little for us
3: yeah i thought that I, i'm no military man i must say that i'm just you know a casual viewer of military films and TV shows, but it seemed like Ramsey commanded very well, and this was his first move. He lured John, his his big opponent, into the middle of the battlefield alone where he was obviously unprotected and very vulnerable. It's actually easy to imagine Book John making the same mistake, remembering that he can act very rashly at times, for example, his reaction to, ramsey's provocation via the pink lettuce. so if there's a similar thing in the books i could see john taking some kind of bait
0: i agree and it's it's not without book precedent i mean if you want an example of someone that did something blatantly stupid and suicidal with time to think about it which john didn't have brandon stark ned's brother like he rides to King's Landing and demands to the Mad King, who is known to burn people alive with, with very little provocation, demands that the Crown Prince come out and die. I mean, come on. This <laughs> is e- easily worse than what John just did. Because Brandon had time to think about it. Brandon was, had time to ride from River Run all the way to King's Landing, and he was still said that thing when getting there. I mean, to me, that's just... It's also a parallel. You know, you've got John... It's a bit like a Stark, but it's also a bit like a Targaryen. He's got that fire, he's got that Danny temper, that same Targaryen streak in him. Which that they I don't think that's what they were trying to show us here, because John's temper has come up before. But I do think it's a cool thing to point out. Hmm. Now, those were actual horses charging at John, at Kit, Harrington. That was not CGI. That was really just wow. He he didn't have to act much. Mm-hmm. It was legitimately terrifying for him. <laughs> so now Boy, you mentioned military analysis. I've read a few different articles from people who are, you know, either either in the military or are military historians, and there are some historical precedents for lots of things that happen here. There's some that are a little unique, but in general, it's a lot of it can be mirrored in real history. Uh, we haven't found any historical precedent for shooting your own men with arrows. Not a stretch for that to have happened in real life, but. We didn't need to find historical precedent because it happens in the actual books. Tywin and or Roose did this exact thing at the Battle of Green Fork. Tyrion at one point sees a flight of Arrow's land, doesn't know where it came from, but he says that it hits friend and foe alike. So, kind of similar. My guess is it was Roose, not Tywin, because in that situation, Tywin is trying to lure the Stark men into a trap. And if he's pounding that area with arrows, it's not, they're not exactly going to want to go to that spot. So I'm guessing it was ruse, but it like could have been both. Like father, like son. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Now, historical precedent for creating a wall of horse and man flesh, that does exist. Even one as tall as that one, which I was a bit skeptical of in our show review on Monday, but sure enough, there are actual historical accounts of piles of bodies at, say, for example, the Battle of Agincourt, famous battle in france it which there's chronicles that say there were piles of bodies as tall as a spear and a lot of spears are taller than men they're like six seven eight feet tall sometimes so that it's as crazy as it seems that there's historical precedent for that. there's also stories of huge piles of bodies at like gettysburg and things like that i mean it's not crazy (laughs) it's
1: a small space they're all Crammed into right there too, because you might think that some of those are larger battles. Good points. Yeah. Just doesn't have as many men. Yeah. But they're a small space. I mean, we see it from above, and we see how crammed close together they
0: are. Yeah, you're right. That's true. Uh, Lady Gwen, you had some thoughts as well.
2: Yeah, the, about the arrows. We, the arrows. We see the difference again between Ramsey and John as commanders. That was highlighted in their initial parlay. John, um, with Davos at his, as his lieutenant, care too much about their own troops to risk a friendly friendly fire situation. They're not going to use their archers. But Ramsay hurls his own troops into the fray, intent on building that mountain of flesh, even at the cost of his own men and their horses.
0: His goal was total annihilation of the enemy. He didn't, <laughs> he wanted to kill every single one of them. And as Yoke Boy said, it was a pretty good plan. It almost worked. It just, uh, you know, the, the thing he couldn't predict or didn't see coming is what undid him. Now the press, the huge press of bodies, which become, comes after this encirclement, which again is similar to the Battle of Cannae, except it was the large force encircling the smaller one, which is the key difference at Cannae, but very similar in that regard in any sense. The music, the desperation, the chaos, it was just incredible, really overwhelming, really visceral. Your boy, you have a lot of good thoughts on this. Take it away.
3: Yeah, I just thought it was awesome when Ramsay put his plan into place. The cavalry and archers created this huge scrum of dead bodies, as we talked about. And this was the reason Ramsay wasn't fussed about the friendly fire, I presume. And then we see the shield wall lining up with those huge, huge shields. Uh, we see the confusion and helplessness on the face of John's army, and there's some, like I said, haven't got much military knowledge, but I wondered what was going on. I was like, you know, what's happening here? And I kind of shared the confusion of the soldiers. So that, that really worked, you know, as a, a visual thing. It, it, they really communicated that confusion very well. Then there's this great aerial shot where we can see the dead bodies and the shields. We can see what's happening. John's army becomes trapped and Ramsey's tactics were conveyed very clearly despite all the chaos so a lot of points go to the director and his great use of that aerial shot. And When the shield wall set the spears and started closing the circle I thought it was really exciting and nerve-wracking. It was a great moment for television and once again underlined Game of Thrones as a groundbreaking production that's redefined what's possible on television this was a scene that i think hollywood would be proud of you know on an even bigger budget i think that if you saw this in the cinema for a high budget film you'd be satisfied
0: actually that's a good point because there's a lot of this praise it's getting this critical acclaim is because of the the how groundbreaking the production was what they did what they were able to accomplish on tv you know we can point to some plot holes we can point to some inconsistencies, but we're book readers. We key in on those things, really. But the average viewer hasn't read the books or has read them once, and they're used to the plot holes in Game of Thrones. And it's just kind of, that's just kind of how it is. They're, they're, that's, we've taken that, we were used to that. So when they blow us up with this incredible spectacle, everyone takes notice. Either all the fans of all, walks of, of all walks of life, people who haven't read the books, etc., they just this is what they're keying in on, the incredibleness of it all.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- they did such a great job conveying the panic of the underarmored men pressed in on all sides and the stampede to escape in the only direction available, which was over that growing mountain of bodies uh, with the enemy umbers waiting on the other side to stop them and John's near suffocation uh, in the press and then in the resulting stampede was conveyed with great effect they switched to this kind of point of view camera angle uh, which made his panic and confusion feel very real
1: yeah the filmmaking and the cinematography in this was spectacular in this episode in particular, maybe I think the best game of Thrones has ever had just, but yeah, that press in particular was, yeah, visceral. You felt claustrophobic during it. You felt buried. And as uh, Kit Harrington said in one of the inside the episode, um, Videos, he said that this was a rebirth for John, and he actually compared it visually to the Danny scene where she's being lifted up by um the by the slaves and Marine, and it is very similar um, visually, very the opposite of each other, you know, obviously, and what's happening, um, and I thought that was a pretty interesting comparison, and but read John's mental state. I, you know, before we were thinking there'd be a significant difference between John before and after his resurrection. And it was, you know, he, he wasn't much of a difference. I think that there's an argument that there's some difference between him. He's just been lifeless. He's, you know, doesn't have a goal. He doesn't have a mission. After Arguably that's a pretty big difference. Exactly. There was that difference. But I think that this, again... I find myself hoping that we see a difference between John before and after this traumatic battle. And I think that one of these things is, yeah, it puts the fire of life back into him, that it, you know, gives him his motivation back. And uh, I mean, he
0: decides he wants to be alive after all. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. like, he's struggling, he's being trampled, he's struggling to breathe. If he doesn't have a will to yeah. live, he's not going to
1: fight his way yeah, out but of he, f- But he fought his way out. And so I think that, that shows a difference in um, his mental state there. But... I, I don't really expect to see him like riddled with PTSD after this, but I think it's pretty easy to imagine John or anyone having some some claustrophobia after being almost suffocated by bo- dead bodies. Wow, yeah. And <laughs> I I could see John in a situation where he's a little uncomfortable there. Mm. Um, and I think that Sansa and John will have a little more in common to bond over. A, not a great thing to bond over, but they both have been through situations that Ramsey has engineered. Hmm.
0: Maybe he'll like standing on top of the wall again. It's the vast <laughs> of open space. Just like, ah, look at this everything. Ah, it's so open and wide and tall and there's no congestion at all up here. I'm going to stay up here forever. Oh. <laughs> So within the battle of the bastards, we got a sub battle, the battle of the beards. Umber, the Umber sigil is a giant, and Tormund's giant's bane for the win, Yeah. Went, taking him down there. Some people thought it'd been fitting for one one to take out uh, small John Umber there, but this works really well too so yeah (laughs) yeah
2: I thought it was great uh after Rickon's death my bloodlust was at an all-time high so (laughs) I found it very satisfying to see the end of Small John Umber who gave Rick under Ramsey so uh, I wondered if any of you guys noticed that Small John and Ramsey had a similar end Uh, Mm -hmm. they both had their throats torn out
3: Mm. by a beast that's cool
2: (laughs) I was actually reading just
1: before this about um, a real life historical um, parallel to that that there was an actual battle where someone uh, it it was a top reddit post um, on our song of ice and fire anyways it was uh, someone actually got their throat ripped out in battle uh, by someone documented uh, Yeah. but it was
3: definitely damn
0: yeah people do desperate things in (laughs) battle you use whatever weapons you have and that's a speaks more to the desperation of the scene. They're jammed close together. Uh, Small John at one point tries to swing his sword at Torment, and it's awkward, and it's supposed to be awkward because he doesn't have room to swing it. The only thing he can do is a short, overhanded slash, and Tormund has no problem blocking it. And then their weapons are just useless at that point, so Torman pulls his little bone knife thing out that he slams him in the face with. That was really brutal. But yeah, it just spoke more to the desperation and chaos and brutality and, and the horror of war. You also get... Maybe something that we didn't get that we wanted was in the Riverland scene, Septon Ray talking about the horrors of war, because that's a big theme of a Feast for Crows. Well, we didn't get him talking about that nearly as much as we wanted to, but we saw it here in this battle. They, were, they definitely showed scenes of Depot a guy with his guts hanging out, screaming for help, and, and a lot of people, a guy with his legs cut off, and all this just really terrible stuff. And that's the point. War is awful. Battle is horrible and it's there's no sugarcoating that. So I'm glad that they showed it visually since they didn't have a speech about it. So that was kind of cool. Kind of cool how, how brutal and awful it was. That's really cool. So <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so yeah, kind of. Kind
2: of. Not really.
0: So let's talk about the arrival of the Vale Knights. This was obviously we expected it. Nobody was like, "Oh my goodness, the Vale Knights coming to save the day." No one saw that coming. Your boy, talk talk to us about this.
3: Yeah, last week, actually, I said that I really hoped that the Knights of the Vale weren't going to swoop in at the last minute and save the day. And I thought that this notion was too predictable, cliche, and I wanted to see something more complex, maybe. However, it did come to pass. The Knights of the Vale came in, as many people had predicted, And so I guess the question for those of us with a critical eye is do we give the show a pass for giving a quick and easy solution here? In my opinion, I personally do give them a pass. I think the battle was groundbreaking TV, like I said. And that they've kind of earned a pass to do something a bit more simplistic. Some people are calling this a Deus Ex Machina. It's in fact not a Deus Ex Machina because it was set up and telegraphed clearly in earlier episodes and so it didn't come out of nowhere it was actually projected so so really the main criticism is that it's a predictable and well-worn ending to a battle but personally it's not one that damaged my enjoyment of the sequence too much
2: yeah uh, definitely not mine either Uh, i loved seeing those banners flying as the cavalry arrived arrived i stood up and cheered <laughs> jumping <laughs> up and down nice. literally how um, fun would it be to be that
0: guy the veil knight in the front that was just like holding the banner like ah! yeah we, <laughs> he looked he looked like he was having a good time here we come. <laughs>
2: yeah uh you know i even point out that this is actually quite similar to tywin arriving at the Blackwater, swooping in stannis arriving at the wall during the wildling attack uh, it's just a it's a well-worn trope it's one that we see used frequently in storytelling it's in Books, fantasy classics such as Lord of the Rings, The Wheel of Time has it, even Harry Potter has it at the end. Uh, films as wide ranging as Star Wars and Saving Private Ryan. It's all over the place. Um, it didn't ruin it, those movies. It didn't so. right. These are all good things. I'm not talking about, you know, <laughs> chunky things that no one likes. These are very popular films and books. So I don't think it was out of place. Um, I just thought it was enjoyable and stirring. And, um, By the way, we expect something very like this is going to happen in the books as well. We commented on that in our episodes on The North and Littlefinger, so uh, something I am looking forward to seeing.
0: Something vaguely similar, I agree, something similar like that could happen in the books. We're waiting to see how that will be set up in the books, but I agree, it's a very possible in-game.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this scene, I thought, had uh, great acting for all. Ma- I mean, the whole episode does, but I, I particularly like this scene um, in the reactions to the Vale Knights returning. Uh, Ramsey gets this sour look on his face, which <laughs> is, you know, pretty satisfying to see Ramsey not with a big grin on his face, happy with the situation.
3: <laughs> yeah. But
1: um, when Jon chases after Ramsey, which is funny, a funny shot as well, the three of them, with one one so large, but uh, <laughs> Sansa sees this, uh, and she has like a she's a pretty interesting look on her face. I thought it was some parts hope, and I think some parts resignation, and some parts fear. Because I I don't think she's let herself hope that John can just kill Ramsey here. Yeah. And I think she's like, well, John's just gonna do that foolish thing. He might die right here. But I think she still has that hope in her, and I think that all comes across in her face and these mixed emotions that she's feeling.
0: I agree. It's even possible, and we'll get into a lot more about what Sansa's you know, frame of mind and why she did this the way she did. But it's worth considering the possibility that she wouldn't have been disappointed if John died.
1: Yeah, I, I thought that too. When she sees that, she like is a little resigned to, well, this is this is how it goes. This is good for me.
0: Yeah. So that's a segue to Ramsey's end, which Sansa's psychology really comes out in his final moments. But we'll take our mid-episode break first and come back to talk about that in just a minute. So we call it Ramsey's Fitting End. It's been kind of this long guessed at in the books fandom that this is how he would go out. Vaguely, in a sense, meaning that his dogs would kill him. The other parts of the circumstances is, is anyone's guess. So, Yoke Boy, tell us what you thought of that.
3: Okay, Ramsey's death. I think we, we all wanted to see Ramsey go one way or another, didn't we? So <laughs> yeah. uh, very glad that we, there's no more kind of winter hell, as some fans have called it anymore. The curse <laughs> has been lifted. But the, the end, Ramsey's ending. I must admit, despite really liking the episode, this this kind of caused me some cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, I was very glad to see the back of Ramsey. His ending was very poetic. Being eaten by his dogs is something that we've been. producing. For a while. And Sansa being the one administering the punishment shows, in theory, that she's regained power over him, that despite and despite Ramsay's threat that he's now part of her, that she's really over Ramsay and he's got no hold of her over her at all. However, Sansa does stay to watch Ramsay being devoured, and she does kind of get a kick out of it. And so I, I wondered, isn't this really proving Ramsey's words here that he'll be part of her? Because she's behaving like him. She's doing what he did to Fat Walder. You know, she's watching the the dogs devouring someone uh, sadistically almost, you know? So I, I don't think the writers considered this when they chose to have Sansa kind of watching on, on Smugly. But I do think it's a bit troublesome troublesome and i think it would have been better for sansa to unleash the hounds and then kind of just leave ramsay to be eaten you know like she didn't have a care in the world i think that would have given the the scene a different tone and sansa could have had her revenge and been smug without this kind of element of sadism which i was a kind of a bit unsure of the filmmakers said real quick to jump in
0: the filmmakers said that they filmed her walking away many times so they i think they definitely had a specific reaction in mind so they they wanted to get take different different shots until they got just the right kind of smiley smirks of you know subtle kind of thing going on there i'm not sure what they're trying to indicate but they were absolutely you know they definitely paid took care with that moment
2: yeah i I read that too um and i agree with yoke boy's point about ramsey being part of her now in this sense i mean whether they intended that or not and that's kind of what I took from that but I thought her watching Ramsay's death was actually a throwback at least in the book world to something we saw from Sansa in Game of Thrones. At the tourney of the hand um, it says uh, Jane Poole covered her eyes whenever a man fell like a frightened little girl but Sansa was made of sterner stuff a great lady knew how to behave at tournaments. Even Mordain noted her composure and nodded an approval. So she's not afraid to look away. And then when Sir Hugh with a veil fell brutally, murdered by the mountain right in front of them, it says Jane Poole wept so hysterically that Mordain finally took her off to regain her composure. But Sansa sat with her hands folded in her lap. And this was the part I found interesting watching with a strange fascination. So she's definitely got this kind of, you know, not afraid to watch gruesomeness. Uh, and I think there's perhaps some starkness at play there, something along the lines of, you know, he who passes the sentence, swinging the sword, and not looking away from the cut, as Bran was warned by Jon at the very beginning of Game of Thrones. But, you know, at any rate, it seems like this hardness, for lack of a better term, was foreshadowed in her character. And getting back to Sophie's... Comments about it. She noted that John allowed Sansa to do this, so it wasn't something that you know he he was on board with it. Uh, he recognized that she was capable of making this decision and deserved to be in charge of Ramsay's execution. So yeah, there was some good.
0: debate about that whether John or Sansa made that call. I, th- I thought it was clear that it was Sansa, but there was some confusion amongst the fandom. But the Post-show comments by San- by Sophie Turner and Kit Harington make it very clear that it was Sansa's call.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you guys both raised really good points there. I think it's a little of all of it. I think that she does choose a sadistic way to have him killed, and I think that does show that Ramsay's, you know, in her a little bit that he's affected her. But I also think that yeah, that it is part of her character to be to, to look at what was happening. Um, but I also think that there's another angle there in that when someone torments you like that, you wait to see them die. You you want to make sure they're dead. And I think that's part of her happiness. You know, she can finally breathe easy, sleep easily at night, a little more easily, uh, knowing that he's actually dead. And it's like in any horror movie. You're like, wait, no, wait and see if he's dead. Don't let
0: him <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's like he stands up behind you. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, no, he's
3: still alive. Right.
2: Jeez. Just when you think he's really dead, the hand twitches. In Game of
3: Thrones, yeah. half the characters that are dead are still alive, according to some theories. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah with, that, with that
1: angle, I'm very glad she stayed and, and saw him really die. Yeah, yeah, I
0: that's saw crazy. we saw some a funny uh, meme of of Ramsay's first appearance in season seven, and it was just a picture of dog poop. <laughs> Ouch. there's no coming back from that <laughs> <That's> <laughs> unless great. we see undead poop walking around how would that even what did, what did, how would that even work <laughs> very final i imagine
2: Da-da. a little emoji
0: yeah the walkers raise him from the dead but this is all there is of him so it's just white poo. <laughs> Anyway, so let's talk about the the battle overall. You know, there's there's uh, we, could, we we broke down the individual sections, but we could talk about some talk about it at a high level. Speaking of at a high level, mm-hmm. one nice parallel between the two battles was the arrow flight versus the trebuchet flight. It was like a a GoPro shot where we got to see the full arcing shot of. One of each, and I thought that was yeah. a nice touch.
1: Yeah, they had a lot of really great POV perspective shots in both battles, from yeah the Trebuchets and the Arrows in the north. And I'm a big fan of those style of shots in general. Um, and it was really great just when you start out the episode with the with the Miranese ship sending it off, which was great, great yes. filmmaking. But they also had a lot of stunning like vistas with wide open spaces from Marine up high seeing the destruction. Um, just Definitely just really wide screen shots. And that was true again with the distance between the two battles and when they're doing their dip- diplomatic meaning.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. Totally Marine agree. Marine looked fantastic from above, didn't it? When the, the fireballs were hitting the pyramid. Uh, like you say, it's the perfect shot to really capture the battle. Yeah, And, uh, you know, they use similar kind of aerial shots, which I, I said kind of inform the viewer what was actually going on in the scrum and stuff like that. Yeah, and this is one of the advantages of TV. I mean,
0: George could describe those pyramids, those fireballs, as beautifully as he can, mm-hmm. and he's amazing at doing that. But nothing really compares to seeing it on screen. Mm-hmm. It's just a totally different game. It's the it's the advantage TV has, where the books have the huge advantage of being able to see inside characters' heads and explain their thoughts, which is just, you know, a totally different thing. So, you know, they both have their advantages, and this really, the show is really has shows its advantage as well in episodes like this. Of course, there's nothing really like this, but... Mm. It's, you know, we've seen things similar. Similar, with less scale. <laughs> now, as far as the weaponry, it's interesting to look at some of the choices they made there. There's the bolt is a lot like some sort of pseudo-Greek Macedonian phalanx with Roman-sized shields or perhaps more ancient Greek shields. Now, one guy holding the shield without a weapon, that's kind of unique. I don't think there's a lot of precedent for that. Usually the, the, the Macedonians and Greeks would hold a shield in one hand and the spear in the other. So that, you know, but they have the same kind of the spears had the same back end with the big counterbalance weight so that it you know it's not all bulky and heavy so i thought that was really nice um there's a lot of other analysis out there about the weapons choices and some of the costuming and how they did i highly recommend some of the behind the scenes videos the the making of the the all the things they did with that there's a lot of great things out there to view on that so we won't get too deep into that there's also a lot of Great articles out there, people who've, who know more than we do about military history that have analyzed the specific weaponry used.
1: As an aside, um, I, I kept thinking that this should just be the Battle for Winterfell. I hated the name The Battle of the Bastards. I really, It's my <laughs> least favorite of all of the Game of Thrones episode titles.
0: Best <laughs> episode, worst title. It, it's, no. <laughs> it's
1: got Marine in it, and those masters were some real bastards. So it's a fitting <laughs> title, I think. Battle for Winterfell would not have worked for the Marine plotline.
0: That's a good point, yeah. That's a very good point. So and we're
1: bastards. You
0: agree, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I do. <laughs> so as far as John goes, this is one thing that, that I wanted to, I've wanted been wanting to say for a while and I haven't necessarily had the best place to put it. I think it fits really well here. John is a hero trope in the show. He's not really that in the books. And this is a g- good place to talk about that distinction. George R. R. Martin breaks a lot of fantasy tropes. To be fair, he uses a lot of them as well. He doesn't break all of the tropes. He just breaks a lot of them. Some of them he fully embraces. The show can't break as many tropes as George does because it's just easier to do that in books. You can be more courageous, so to speak, with your writing. You don't have to please a TV audience. Books, you just have more leeway to do what you want. So I'm not saying George didn't make good choices. Far from it. I'm just saying the show is c- can't take as many chances as George can they just can't break all the tropes that he does so they have to back off on some of those so they went with the hero trope with John and that they've been doing that the whole time Uh, of course George can also take five to six years to put out a book if he wants (laughs) but he has done that several times already the show has to Heck, the show is already working on Season 7. And we haven't even seen all the episodes. That's how tightly packed their schedule is. How much work they put in. It's really insane how much effort this takes. And I have to... You know, I cr- criticize the show plenty, you know, less than a lot of people, but I still criticize it, but I, oh, you just got to keep that in the back of your mind, how hard it is for them to do this, and have their time constraints, and how much of a factor that is. The ages of the characters, I mean, of the actors, rather, that's a huge factor. I mean, look at how big Rickon and Bran have gotten, and that's just, <laughs> they're supposed to be younger than that, when, but what are you going to do?
1: <laughs> when Rickon called, I mean, when Ramsay called Rickon little man, he uh, so he's like... Has-
0: Art Parkinson's taller than you and Rian. <laughs> yeah, you're who's little? He's way taller than you, dude. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. So none of this like you can't just say this makes the show better because they have less time. It doesn't make it better. It just makes it understandable that they have these conflicts or these constraints, and you kind of can give them a pass on some things because they're on this insanely tight, difficult schedule. It's good perspective to have. It doesn't doesn't change. It doesn't mean you should appreciate the show more, but it definitely has that effect on me.
1: Yeah, I will note that as TV gets better and better quality with huger productions tons of shows are now doing they're not keeping themselves to a year between every season they're doing a year and a half maybe two years and that's reasonable it's disappointing to the fan to have to wait two years for a new episode of like humans the sci-fi show but they don't have hbo's budget hbo has multiple teams working but they still only have two showrunners and they get run through the ringer right there. Yeah,
0: you, you yeah. can tell they're tired, and I don't blame them. I mean, damn, this is hard. <laughs> I mean, they're going to be able to sit back. When they're done, they're going to sit back and think, look at this amazing thing we've created. They'll be able to reap the rewards for the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. but they still got a lot of work to do. <laughs> but most of it's done. Yeah, so I like to think about that. I mean, I just imagine the books, what the books would be like if George just had to put a book out every two years, if he was just forced to. Like, didn't matter. He just is under that kind of constraints. Of course, we're, we're all glad he's not. I think the quality would still be very good. It'd be great. It might still be, uh, you know, amazing. But it would take a hit. The quality would take a hit if he was forced to, to put it out sooner than he wanted to. There might be errors. There might be plot holes, which we see in the show sometimes. Those are the kind of things that they maybe don't have time to, f- to catch. It might happen in the books, too. Anyway, let's move past that. Let's talk about the aftermath of the battle. This is really big. There's a lot to discuss in terms of where the plot's going to go now. Uh, we'll call these the ramsey Hat mm-hmm. to, to Maester Shane for that pun. I uh, appreciate a good pun when I see it. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not as good as Art Parkinson's pun, to be <laughs> fair, but it's a good pun.
1: I uh, liked how Melisandre looked very proud uh, when the flayed, ban- the flayed man banners were taken down and she was up on the ramparts of Winterfell. Because that was her vision coming true at last.
0: Yeah, maybe we're seeing, you're right, maybe we're seeing her, maybe her Zell tree will return full force when she starts to, you know, get it back a little bit.
1: Yeah, she looked pretty confident there, pretty yeah. pleased.
0: Davos didn't look so happy <laughs> at her. <laughs> she's got that to deal with. Will she see it coming, that he's coming for her, whatever he does? I don't know, but she saw it coming before. So let's talk about the deaths. We already discussed Rickon, and we expected it. He's been on our worry ever since he was captured, uh, and that played out. Unfortunately, 1-1 is gone. We predicted that. We were far from alone on that. He was the top prediction for a ton of people for budget reasons. Having him cut made a lot of sense. Many have noted the similarities between him and Hodor. One giant holding a door, the other breaking it down. Both in service of the Starks and in the cause of fighting the Walkers. Kind of indirectly in 1-1's case, but still. So I guess the giants are all gone now. 1-1's One, gone. There's probably not a 2-2, two, two, the ballerina giant, or uh, a 3-3, three, three, the, uh, the fullback giant the, for the New York Giants, I suppose. So it seems very likely they're out of the show permanently. Are they going to uh, burn him? I hope so. I just, they do not want a giant white running around or a white yes, giant. I
1: also like burying it would be really hard to a big <laughs> hole there Did yeah, the huge smell hole. of 1-1. I really, I know they're not going to do it but I would love to see just a little seed of Melisandre giving giving it a shot to raise 1-1. One, <laughs> one. Like, I'd like her to just, when someone important dies, I'd like her to See if the Lord of Light wants her to bring him back. Like, what does she have to lose?
0: <laughs>
1: but I really, I, I they're not going to do that. No, probably not. But she should.
3: <laughs> that would be cool. She <laughs> should at least try Rick on. I mean, no one's mentioned oh. that. It, it's an in, inconvenient truth <sighs> for them, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. Shall That's we true, resurrect? She should try him. <laughs> Sh- shall we resurrect the heir, heir of Winterfell? No, don't. No. Don't do that. He's got oh, too many oh, arrows oh, in him. Oh,
0: oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, a lot of people noted the absence of Ghost, which, there's a plus and minus there. Uh, You know, of course it would have been cool to see Ghost, but, you know, as much money as they spent on this this, this episode, it's like, where were they gonna find the money to do Ghost? Apparently... Well, and of course, the good thing is that he's still alive. That's the silver lining, because, like, you could have easily seen him dying during that
3: battle. Apparently, the 1-1's death, in a sense, saved Ghost, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that right, young boy? Yeah, this is from the director of the episode. He's called Miguel Sapochnik. He says, Ghost was the, was in there in spades originally, but it's also an incredibly time-consuming and expensive character to bring to life. Ultimately, we had to choose between Wun-Wun and the direwolf, so the dog bit the dust. <laughs> Not
0: literally, luckily. He's still alive, presumably, and that may free up some budget for him next season. Of course, they've got plenty of other budget challenges next season. But mm-hmm. yeah, the way Wolves have been being killed off the season, it's almost uh, a mercy that he wasn't in the battle. <laughs> yeah.
3: And I think they made the right choice there with Wun-Wun because, I w- you know, it wouldn't have been the same battle without him. It was great seeing him in the middle as being the kind of one force of resistance
0: yeah,
1: and but, honestly, I mean, it would be bizarre for the giant to not be in the battle, but it's not bizarre for Ghost to not be in the battle.
0: Yeah, John right. could have left him back just yeah, because. It's
1: very easily explainable, but it's not really explainable why One One isn't there, except if One One said no.
0: Yeah, instead of snow, he says, you know, sun, and goes to <laughs> yeah. Dorne. He says no, <laughs> snow, <to> no, snow. <laughs> no snow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so let's see some other people that were missing that aren't dead that we guessed maybe would show up. We didn't really think the Brotherhood Without Banners would get there that soon and play a role in the battle, but we threw that out there as a possibility. As predicted, didn't happen. Brienne and Podrick showing up. Now that seemed like it could be a possibility, especially like they could show up with the Vale Knights because Sansa's going to sh- show up with them, okay. so Brienne's being a like Sansa's side. Seems like they got
1: their letter, though.
0: Yeah, they with did. John,
1: re- re- John referenced the Blackfish That's not right. coming. So good point, good point. That.
0: So that uh, is yet to come. Maybe we'll see that next episode. Maybe that'll be delayed till the beginning of next episode, next season rather. So uh, other questions though. There's Ramsey's dead. Small John Umber is dead. Maybe Harold Carstark. I think he's dead too. It didn't really. The show didn't really put much effort into making his fate clear. But it seemed like pretty much everyone <laughs> died. There. I
1: watched it with subtitles on, hoping that we'd get like a. Harold Carsark death rattle, you know, <laughs> type of thing, but no.
0: So you wonder if the show is going to address that issue of who takes over those houses now, especially in the case of Ramsey, because there's no Dreadfort lord at all. There's no heir to, and Sansa even very directly points that out, your line ends, you know, your memory ends, et cetera, et cetera. So will they bother with that? Will the Dreadfort, will, will rulership of the Dreadfort come up on the show? Or will it come up in the books? Almost certainly that George wouldn't let that thread dangle. I don't think. So yeah, very interesting. There's some possibilities like maybe Roose, yeah. So like what I'm saying is maybe Roose Ramsey and Fat Walda's kid all die in the in the book. So then they will be faced with a similar situation with the Dreadfort not having anyone to rule it. In the if they do go this way in the show, maybe we get a parallel to the books where in the in the Carstark situation where Alice Carstark marries Sigorn, a Wildling. Maybe Tormund marries somebody. We predicted this a while ago as a possibility. Um,
1: I think that would be more likely for the Umbers, maybe.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Especially, it'd
1: be fitting for, I think it would be fitting for Torment to get the Umbers seat considering he <laughs> killed him and he matches it pretty well. But I also think that that would really piss off the other Northerners. So I, I don't know how likely I think that he'll get a title. He Of all the Wildlings, he deserves it. I,
0: I wonder about, you, you make a good point that a lot of the North might be against it. On the other hand, the Wildlings fought Against the Boltons, they yeah. they deserve some. Some northern lords might be like, okay, look, they earned this, you yeah. know.
1: I th- I think so. Whatever, if whoever's wiped out, but uh, and the, none of the Umbras came on this side of John, so they just lose their claim if there's any more of them. If that they could choose to do that.
0: Um, a new lord, like his, this, this the son of Small John, could be you know a decent guy, and he could mm-hmm. convince John that he's a. Uh, you know a stark loyalist and he wouldn't he wouldn't he would have gone against his father if he could have something like that who knows Yeah. the show may not even go there it's really hard to say i tend to think
1: though about sansa i mean she's the lady of the dreadfort that's her title by rights who Mm -hmm. else would get it um and so that makes me think about well we can't help but think about john as the king in the north versus sansa as the king and as the queen in the north and whether that'll be whether they'll be actually meaning to go against each other. They do have opposing claims to each other, and Littlefinger will be trying to push for Sansa to be in the one in control. And That's a good point. She has a seat, so at the very least, if John gets the king in the north, and he gets Winterfell. Sansa has a seat. She can just rule from the Dreadfort. Maybe she wants to rename it or something. <laughs> uh,
0: the Breadfort. We've yeah. already got another alternate suggestion. <laughs> that's here. that's
1: if Hot Pie got the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, that's,
0: that's a good point about Sansa. I mean, you, you think you say Sansa's technically Lady of the Dreadfort. Totally true. In exactly the same way that Lady Dustin is Lady of um, Barrow Hall. Or rather of... Um, Barrowton? Barrowton, yeah. I can't believe I couldn't think of that. <laughs> but... Because she wasn't a Dustin by birth, but her husband died and there were no kids, so she's in charge. So yeah, Sansa, exactly, that's a good point.
1: And I, maybe it'll affect Sansa's push for Winterfell, whether she would or not. Maybe she, I think she would be more likely to if she didn't have a seat, but she has a seat, so it'll be really interesting to see what the political situation's going to be.
0: Yeah, I really wonder how they play that out, whether they're going to kind of... Gloss over some of it and just do handle it with dialogue, or whether they're going to show things, or I mean, I, they're going to be. I feel like they're more likely to d- do some of these things than not, given how the focus will be on the Walkers and the need to unite and fight them. And it seems like the Northern Lords won't just exit stage left; they'll they may become more prominent in in next season. So we'll have to see. Good good questions to have up in the air while we wait to for next season and this next episode. Of course, there could be some of that resolution next episode. Mm-hmm. But speaking of heirs and who's in charge where in the North, Sansa, here's another major difference between book and show. Sansa and Jon both know that Bran is alive.
3: And in the books, only Sam and Gilly know. Right, Yoke Boy? Yeah, that's true. And just to look at the show a minute, with the Boltons gone, might someone go looking for Bran? Or could he just show up at the wall? Uh, if he does show at the wall, you know, after seeing some kind of RLJ vision, like the bed of blood, you know, he can straight up tell John the truth or the, you know, the truth as he's been informed by the Weirnets. Uh, Furthermore, just to add to some of the dynamics you two were just talking about, what happens to the Stark family dynamics if he does show up? Because he would be the rightful heir to Winterfell now, uh, with Sansa supposed to be playing the game or at least seeming more politically-minded, how is Sansa going to feel upon Brand's return? Uh, are the Starks such a close-knit family that they're above a succession struggle? We're already being shown the leadership tensions between John and Sansa, I think, quite subtly so far, but I expect that to increase. Uh, will Bran's uh, inability to have a, an heir himself mean anything? So I, I think there's lots of really interesting quest- questions that are going to arise if Brand continues to head south and stay alive, you know, which I really expect him to do.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think we have a pretty... Good uh, potential parallel here. Um, if so, because we have Theon stepping aside for Yara right in this very episode, uh, well, it happened before. Absolutely. Um, and I, I could definitely, definitely see Bran stepping aside for whether it's Sansa or John, or I really don't know how to play out.
0: But. Yeah. Speaking of Bran's inability to father an heir, some people have questioned us on that. And it's, it's, it's important to point out that that was never made clear in the show, as far as we know. Ned thinks of it in the books as brands unable to father children. Apparently, it's not impossible for someone paralyzed to father children. It depends. It's very rare, I guess. But, so we don't know for sure. But I think it's a fairly safe assumption think, that he can't.
1: I think whether or not he can or can't, I, it's just that his plot line, his arc, his life is not leading towards that.
0: That's an even better point. I agree. That is an even better point. Yeah. So... But we'll have to wait and see. It's, it's very up in the air what, ha- what will happen with Bran. And you, Like you said, I, I think we all agree that Bran's probably not going to try to make himself Lord of Winterfell.
1: He's he, going to go be the, the Lord of uh, the Neck.
0: <laughs>
1: As the, the Lord Consort to She's the heir now. Jojen's
0: dead. I mean, That's true. That's true. <laughs> so here's another major difference between book and show, and something that could throw a major monkey wrench in Littlefinger's plans. First of all, we, we know Littlefinger was aiming to be Warden of the North and that he's going to try to marry Sansa, that all seems very straightforward. Part of that hinges on the fact that some of his things that he's done in the past aren't known. Nobody knows about his betrayal of Ned Stark, except for somebody that might show up that no one would have seen coming, and that's Sandor. Hat tip to Sir Poggy of the North on this one, Littlefinger. Thinks, doesn't, probably thinks this information is hidden, but Sandor was standing right there in the throne room when Littlefinger betrayed Ned to the City Watch. Ned thought he had the City Watch on his side, but Littlefinger sold him out. So did, so did, um, you know, uh, Jano Slint there. Sandor was just standing right there for all that. He, and of course, Littlefinger has no idea Sandor's even alive. So Sandor could spill the beans and that could be huge. So mm. I wonder about that. You guys have any thoughts on that or is that just a.
2: Yeah, I, oh, I love that idea. Uh, I can't believe I never thought of it. I think it's yeah, good it's, catch. Uh, really is, and Sandor is nothing if not painfully honest. So I think <laughs> if you see him in a room with Littlefinger, you can pretty much count on that coming up.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing my hound shirt. The hound shirt today. I really need an S for the hounds for want, Ramsay's death.
2: I
1: wanted to use to incorporate uh, props here, and I wanted to get a little post it with an S. Put it on, Put it there. on right? <laughs> <laughs> the hounds.
0: That, really that would've, been good, hmm. it would've been good. would have been I would have been interested to see if that would have stayed on the whole episode if it would
1: have
0: fallen off. Okay, a couple good watching questions and comments. From Charles Lill. If you consider everything John has done, imagine how his legend will look from a distance. I like this idea. I don't know that it plays out a lot in the show, but it does. A little bit, Ramsey talked about all things I've heard of you. You're the yep. greatest swordsman of all time, <laughs> etc. He's got a Direwolf. He's got a Valyrian steel sword. He's killed a White Walker. He's killed Ramsay now. He, char- he, he charged the Bolton host alone. You know, from a distance with the rumor mill working the way it does, that's going to sound utterly heroic instead of utterly suicidal. He took Winterfell back. With he,
1: the help of a
2: giant.
0: With the help of a giant, yeah, true. He, he fought with giants, uh, alongside giants. He fought alongside wildlings. He killed Korra in half-hand. He's one of the Lord, youngest Lord Commanders of all time of the Night's Watch. And then there's that whole beating death angle on top of everything. So, yeah, from a distance, dude looks like an epic warrior, like a heroic figure. And he doesn't probably he even that realize out it.
1: about Egret, you know? Yeah. The lover died in his own arms. He's yeah. her from the other side. All the
0: romantic, yeah, yeah all the romantic uh, ideals around him, too. Mm. Yeah, it's a really great story. No wonder they've made him the hero trope, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, also, Daniel Christian wonders about John saying, we'll bury my brother in the crypts as a prelude to John going down there himself. A lot of people have talked about what happens if John goes down in the crypts, if there's some secret there waiting for him, or if that's more of a metaphorical thing. But a nice thing to worth pointing out do you guys have any any thoughts on that john going into the crypts you think that's just uh
1: i don't think we will see that i think it would make a lot of sense next season for john to go down there if he learns about this Mm. in contemplation but i don't think we're going to see it next episode okay
0: yeah because we do it's 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 a good thing to consider because we all expect r plus l equals j to be next episode in some form or another so tying that with john like even if he doesn't know what's going on and he's in the crypt standing next to like Lyanna's statue or something like that, just mm-hmm. randomly, it would, it would have like cinematic meaning, even if he doesn't even know what's happening.
3: Well, it um, would suit, lit- remember Littlefinger was doing RLJ hints when he was down in the crypts by Lyanna's tomb. It would probably suit Littlefinger's plan to reveal RLJ to to John in the show because, you know, then he's a Targaryen, right?
0: Yeah, it gets him out of the way as a, as a contender for the North, which Littlefinger wants for himself. You're right. Yeah. So this would be a, a nonviolent way to get John out of the way because obviously his only other option is to hope John goes back to the Night's Watch or to kill him, which that's obviously mm-hmm. going to be hard to do because he already came back from that once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, not going, moving on, another interesting observation. A few different people wrote us to acknowledge sansa's wording when she says no one can protect anyone or no one can protect anybody something to that effect is that it could be foreshadowing for Arya Arya and sansa reunited but no one is this such a common phrase it might not mean anything but i think it's a good thing to think about it's a good thing to, to be aware of it's a possibility
3: if it was in the books i would be kind of more intrigued you know but i, I just don't have the faith that the writers think that deeply about things whereas george obviously <laughs> does yeah, I'm yeah. with you. <laughs>
1: I was uh, I haven't I don't know that I don't think I've been on it since the Arya uh, not being Jaqen in, in the Faceless Man thing, but that burnt through a lot of my goodwill on conspiracy theories and <laughs> deep <laughs> foreshadowings and I'm like, eh, it's probably just what it looks like at first glance.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so let's do our let's do some, some wrap-up topics. Let's do our ratings. What we the one to ten. On a scale of 1 to 10, what did we each think? Um, I will... I'll start. I don't think I've started in a while. Maybe I, I mean, It doesn't matter. I'll start. I'll give this one a, a solid 9. It's the highest rating I've given this season. I. It's not the strongest plot episode of the season, but as we've said many times, the plot was a, on the back burner a bit. There's still a lot of things happened, a lot of important just, things it was happened. just
1: plot issues from previous episodes right. playing out here. It wasn't plot issues of the episode. Yeah, the
0: episode itself didn't necessarily raise new plot issues. The thing with Sansa not tell, talking about the Veil vale Knights is been ongoing you know for example and that wasn't new this episode um so yeah but i give it a nine i just it was just so amazing the scale of production means a lot to me the amount of effort that went into it i give it extra bonus points for that so yeah
1: so what, yeah. what, what are your favorite
0: and least favorite things oh, in the episode oh yeah favorite that? and least favorite things in the episode um i think my least favorite thing was just John being a little too lucky. I think he should have had like a shield or something. That would have explained him surviving the arrows a Time. lot better. Oh, <laughs>
1: that my, I even told you before the episode. I said that was my least favorite thing about the episode was the fact that John didn't have a shield.
0: Well, and I agree with you. You're like, you know, you're right. That probably I should is my have gone favorite first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. stole your shield, Thunder. Yeah. <laughs> and fa- favorite thing, I'm not sure. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. There's so many cool things. I I think the chaos, the scene after John is is just, the 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 scene where John is just the horses are flying past him multiple ways and there's just dudes flying off horses, lances collapsing, horses flying around. That to me I think was my favorite. It, it, maybe that's not a moment, that was like a full minute or two. Yeah, that's I think my favorite that that counts.
1: part. Uh yeah, that was edge of that, my seat. Yeah, I I liked that a lot. I thought it was a little silly like well how extreme some of that was, but it was they were fast. Those horses were hurtling at each other, and especially when you see the behind-the-scenes and you see inside the episode, it's really funny. The horses are moving not that fast at all, and they just sort of gently get close to rear one another. They're up, up next, each they other, they next to each training. other. You see their But they do some of that movie magic to speed them up and make them collide. Um, and so that, it was really impressively done. I think uh, I'll just continue on with mine then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I give it an 8.5. It would round down to an 8 for me. Uh, I, yeah, Still, my, I think my favorite of the season it has the most rewatchability for me. The fewest things that upset me or pissed me off or <laughs> frustrated me. Um, I think my least favorite thing was, again, John not having a shield, especially because he had a shield later when he picked up that Mormont shield. So
0: He dropped his Mormont sword for a Mormont shield. <laughs> yeah,
1: we didn't even mention that, that he had, yeah, he fought with both Mormont shield and Mormont sword. <laughs> uh, but my favorite... That
0: might have made Lady Yana smile. You might have turned her <laughs> frown upside down seeing that. <laughs>
1: That's funny. I think my favorite was probably the Danny Yara conversation oh, yeah. right there because I've just been looking forward to it for a really long time and it happened how I wanted it to, basically. And Danny was clearly a little into Yara there. Um, I, saw, I, I think she, uh, I saw someone commenting that she gave Dario the same little hint of a smile when he was being cheeky. During the negotiations oh, nice. and then Amelia Clark in one of the cast interviews said, uh, get rid of Dario, bring on the ladies. So <laughs> I was pretty happy I think with that. A lot that. of people would
0: agree with that. <laughs> yeah, get
1: rid of Dario. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and the bring on the ladies yeah, yeah. part. A lot of people are hoping for that. Um, okay, so so Radio Westeros team, uh, Lady Gwen, we'll start with you. What did, what was your rating and least and favorite least and least favorite and most favorite moments?
2: Uh rating I'm gonna go with a nine. Good you know for all the spectacle um most favorite this is hard but um I guess my favorite moment was the press I just I just think I was so well done and realistic and well conveyed uh least favorite is hard and I'm funny because I'm gonna go with um least favorite might have been the shield (laughs) that john did have because that was fairly unrealistic (laughs) where did that
0: shield even come from
2: with the with like (laughs) you're catching arrows in a shield Uh, like just uh. i I was like oh come on after this really great realistic gritty battle scene now he's catching arrows at point blank range in his shield (laughs) (laughs) seemed a little off but um i also you know I kind of I was have mixed feelings about the Danny and Yara scene I, I I liked some things about it I don't really like what they've done with Yara um, because she seems almost caricature to me the the way they've sort of moved her character off in this direction um, so um, you know it's it's good on, it's good on the one hand but then I wish Yara was kind of being a little more um, real or believable. Why not? I think that's a good yeah. point
1: uh, about that. I see a lot of criticisms and praise for, one, Yara's sexuality and how they portrayed it. And I kind of feel both sides of things. Like, it's maybe stereotypical, but also mm. a little refreshing. I mean, she's pansexual. She's not just a lesbian. She just likes people. She's attracted to men and women. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's maybe more of a stereotype that she's just for anything and sexually yeah. up for anything and promiscuous maybe but I, I I don't think it's that much of a trope or stereotype and I think it's more refreshing to me still to see an ed to see a pansexual person on TV so mm-hmm. I think I gave it a little leeway there for that and I think if it had just been Dar- uh, Yara the Lesbian who's butch and wants to have sex with Daenerys. Mm-hmm. I would have felt a little differently maybe but no mm. there, there was it was cuz Gemma Whelan specifically said out of um, In an interview she said that Yara just liked
2: all sorts of people that she was okay. Pan.
3: That's good So I know. think that
2: affected yeah. my opinion of that scene maybe makes but, sense
3: yeah.
2: I think she, she seemed it felt to me like she came it, it was a to me the character felt like it changed dramatically her attitude towards people um, where you know was one thing to be to be um, to be pansexual but yeah. it's another thing to just all of a sudden be yeah. acting like a like a lad. I think that was one the, say. the, of the is that
1: they didn't put the groundwork there for she, this Yara yeah, exactly. thing. They, they, you could tell that they chose this decision, this most recent season. Yeah, they just they threw yeah, in the vol
0: and set setting up it up with the prostitute and then just quickly right. resolving yeah. it with Danny. Yeah. 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 Okay, Yoke Boy, what are you,
3: what were your thoughts on on uh, the ratings, least in favorite? <clears throat> okay, I give this a nine, and I just want to compare it to Blackwater and Hard Home, which. I, I loved all three, but Blackwater and Hard Home I liked more. And I'll say why. Because I thought it had a bit more emotion to it. And it drew me in on an emotional level more. Whereas this felt like a pure spectacle. Okay. So, but it's, you know, it's still nine is still a very high mark. I would say my favorite moment was the, the claustrophobia of John under the, the collapsing scrum and the editing where, your eye couldn't track what was going on and it confused your brain. And that, that you know, made me confused. I wondered what was going on and I, I felt like I I needed some air as well. So that worked really well. Um, my least favourite moment, I'm actually going to ape or something Lady Gwynne said, the, the, the triple arrows in the shield at the end was just kind of like a bit unnecessary everyone was just kind of stood watching there was some archers there and they're just kind of watching john do one more heroic thing which i I kind of felt was unnecessary and kind of broke the realism that we talked about so yeah but overall nine is my highest mark of the season that's so
1: funny that you guys uh we both had complaints about shields and realism. <laughs> yeah, we had the,
0: the same opposite. complaint, and not having a shield. And you guys complained about when he did have a shield, how it was
3: used. So that's we're kind of on the same page there. I feel like I. Would've... They can't. They can't win, can they? They've got shields. They've got no shields. We <laughs> we're such critics. I
1: feel like if John had. Shown his how good he was with a shield, maybe throughout the battle by yeah. defending himself. Maybe it wouldn't have come so much out of left field for him to defend himself there. But it was awfully short range for him to do that, and he is, did lower it a little bit.
0: This has been a complaint of mine for a long time—the lack of shields. It's just, a <laughs> lot of times in past seasons. It's made it's been bizarre that they just don't have shields, and they're going into like these huge battles, and it's like. Where's your shield, man? (laughs) Where's all your shields? Where's your shields? All of you. Why don't you have shields? Like in the Mountain and the Viper. Like, why do they not have shields? Anyway. Minor complaint. Very minor. So, let us move on to our credits. And then after that, of course, we'll do our trailer spoilery chat. So, let's first of all thank our musicians, the History of Westeros Bards. That's Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval. We have another cover of the theme song we're going to eventually reveal and last uh, night I myself was playing with a metal cover of it I learned it on on guitar and I'm, I've got some ideas for that it's David uh David Beers aka Lucifer Means Lightbringer has been suggesting I do that for a while and I think I might finally take that suggestion I'm
1: gonna do metal
0: <laughs> so thanks to First Lord Cash Craig Hand of the King Lord of Mines Lord of Makers and the Black Pupil Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog is our Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge is the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North, and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs and Warden of the South. Our small council is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers. Grand Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is our Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever, who maybe should be Rosie the Cleverest, mm. is Master of Laws. And Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships. I will expect ships to become a bigger part of, of the story next season.
1: And this podcast.
0: And this podcast, yes. <laughs> our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Darliz of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Hey, spots open. Name Talk about renaming the castle. Uh, there's an opening there. Lady Alicia of the Green Blood, Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood, rather, is Lady of Desert Rose. Geoffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake. Lord Grey Bay is of the Queen City. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the North Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawke's Eye and Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance, which is, again is a Game of Thrones Ascent Facebook group mm-hmm. uh, grouping there, so check them out. Big I didn't group there. Know that. What's that? I don't
1: think you ever actually told me that. Oh, really? I I should join that alliance. I
0: mentioned it in a past episode, but I guess you weren't around, yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? Lady uh, Cachon Vallant is of Swine Harbor. And Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglazed. And we've got one of his theories coming up at the end of the episode here. We've also got Lord Alistair Whittaker, Lord of the Dawnhold. And, of course, King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady is still wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. Our History of Westeros Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear. We also have the History of Westeros Night's Watch, commanded by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield, and finally, last but not least, First Steward Dolorous Roenick Cantrell, wielder of the Valyrian Spoon, for the night is dark and full of turnips. <laughs> yes, yes. Lots of fun titles there. Lots of ways to support the show at historyofwesteros.com, including Patreon, as I've just mentioned. But you can also access Amazon through our site. And anything you buy through Amazon, it attracts to us without costing you any more. So great Mm -hmm. place to shop while supporting the show. We've got links up for the UK and Canada, as well as America. We're working on some foreign language ones as well, which is a little trickier for us doing French and German links. But we're trying to get those up. You can also check out our link to audible.com. As the season winds down, we're all getting infected with show knowledge, and it's a good time to reset that and get yourself back in book mode. I don't mean infected in a bad way. It's just hard to keep the two the track of the two sometimes. Even us who do this like full-slash-part-time thinking about these things, it's still hard to keep track of all those things. So... Check it out. Audible.com subscription. 30-day free trial comes with one free download. If you don't like the trial, you get to keep the download. But if you do, well, you found something new to entertain yourself with. Re-listen to the books if you don't want to sit down and read them or do both at the same time. Lots of possibilities there. All right, let's talk about what comes next. The last episode, full of goodness. 69 minutes. It's going to be, oh yeah, real quick, don't forget. Our Q&A tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard. The link is in the in the description box for this episode if you haven't already signed up. Even if you can't make it, you can ask questions. The questions will get upvoted. We'll answer the most popular ones. And this should be a good time.
1: I moderate, so if you want your question answered, you better be nice to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good advice. All right, so... It seems like a major part of this next episode is going to be around King's Landing. It certainly won't be the only thing, but it's a major thing. We get several shots of it. We get an up up shot of the of the, of the the Great Sept looking down on the seven-pointed star where the judges are each sitting on one corner of it. It looks kind of cool. A lot of people getting dressed up. We see Loras. Well, Loras isn't dressed up, but we see Marjorie getting dressed up. Cersei's looking all dressed up. Tommen's getting his crown put on. He looks very Baratheon in his attire. Lady Alicia the Everlasting suggests... The High Sparrow wants to em- emphasize that he's a Baratheon and push away that Lannister. Remember how uh, people were wondering about that in past seasons, how they were talking about how Joffrey of the House is Baratheon and Lannister, which is really not mm-hmm. typical. Usually it's just the King's House that gets mentioned, but the Lannisters are so powerful. So it looks like the High Sparrow might be trying to push back on that. Speaking of backs, we see someone walking out into the air, open air there, and actor Eugene Simon, who plays Lancel, confirms that that's him. So... We see Lancel briefly as well. That's not a surprise in general. But do you guys have any predictions for this plotline or have we I think we mostly covered what we expect to happen. We some sort of wildfire thing. We've got our worries of the week coming up in a minute. We could talk about who we might who we think might live through this and who we think won't. But yeah, there's a lot of questions. You guys have any anything to add to that? Not right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we we have covered it pretty well at this point. So, we'll just be waiting and then reacting to it afterwards. Get ready for potential wildfire, people burning, the death of the High Sparrow, maybe, and others. But, hmm. Hmm. We also have Danny and Dario. Mm, This calls back to what you said about Danny and Dario. (laughs) Amelia Clark saying get rid of Dario, bring on the women.
1: I do wonder what their conversation's going to be about.
0: Yeah, what's Michael Huisman going to be like? Well, get rid of me. What are you talking (laughs) about? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> dario's gonna stay and lead marine
0: <laughs> dario's gonna be the one left behind to control <laughs> marine there you go <laughs> leave the, leave marine in the hands of a sword. <laughs> <laughs> we also have danny and Tyrion sitting together on the steps it's kind of like they're having a real heart-to-heart or something and he says you're in the great game now apparently in response to are you scared but that might be a little editing trick there but i think so. i think that's what's what's being said there so that's interesting. Maybe what I'm guessing, maybe what she's scared of is of what happens to Marine after she leaves. That's, that's my best guess. She's worried about leaving it all behind and, and the slaver's coming back or something like that. She won't be able to protect them. She can be so far away. It's only her threats that maybe will hold them in place. And we'll have to see if that'll be enough. Now, Bran. Bran, we got a quick shot of Bran. And so we know he's gonna be in the episode. Lady Gwen, you have some thoughts on this.
2: Well, yeah, and we we also know, um, we've talked about Mid-Ned being in episode 10, uh, so I think what's on a lot of people's minds is how can they avoid some sort of RLJ reveal this season after all the setup and bringing back all the hints from previous seasons. Uh, it seems like they've kind of, le- everything has led to this moment that we hope is coming next episode. If it doesn't, I can't see how it's not just gonna make their job so much harder next year if they pass on it here. I agree. Yeah, yeah. that's that's.
3: Very
1: I think true. yeah, we will see the Tower of Joy. I like the thought that uh, you know it's an iconic line. Promise me, Ned. But only cat was an iconic line too.
0: And, I, and he Ooh. said, "You're only your sister." Yeah. I
1: like... like you know. Promise your sister, Ned. <laughs> <laughs> promise me, Eddard. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh...
0: She, yeah, is going to be speaking in third person. <laughs> so I, I, I agree with you guys. It seems it's super likely. Not only that, but our Twitter on Twitter we saw Eddie Ayer, who again played Sir Gerald Hightower. He... Says, he tweeted, lots of people asking me about the Tower of Joy scene in the final episode, but my lips are sealed. Well, you just gave away that there's a Tower of Joy scene in the final episode. <laughs> but we knew that already from other spoilers, but I thought that was kind of funny. It's, it's, you, even by saying, I'm not going to spoil it, you still kind of spoil it. <laughs> but in a very vague and not very specific way. So I, I, don't, I hardly call that a spoiler. It's more a tease than anything. So we also have a shot of Jamie and Lord Walder. L- Walder is... Toasting the room, saying the Lannisters and phrase, send their regards. Who are they sending them to? I wonder. And I really wonder, yeah, how this the scene is going to go and why is Jamie even going there? We see a shot from Watchers on the Wall that posted their screenshots, screenshots, images, stills from the upcoming episode. And most of them are similar to what's in the scene in the trailers, but this, this, this image is different. It shows Jamie and Braun, an army marching. I assume away back to King's Landing, but it could be them marching to the twins. So both of those are I, I lean towards marching to King's Landing, but I, lean I, I don't. The twins. Okay, so we're neither of us is super confident on that, I guess. It's very strong possibilities. Now, Yookboy,
3: you have an idea. Yeah, I think this is an idea. That quite a few people have had, and it might just be wishful thinking. But wouldn't it be nice if Arya showed up to give Wal- Walder Frey a good needling? <laughs> like I said, it, it, it's wishful thinking, but it, it's not like out of the realms of possibility. But I'm not going to kind of uh, hold my hopes up too much.
0: It's confirmed that there is an Arya scene in the Riverlands, though, right? Still, is that yeah. correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we don't know where it takes place, yeah. but it could very likely take place here. So that it would be uh, all I one think scene. So.
1: I- I, I try, I'm I trying not to get my hopes up for things in general, mm. but I just think it's really likely. Yeah,
0: yeah. definitely agree. Yeah. As far as, okay, I've been. Uh, you have, what's that, Lady Gwyn?
2: I was just going to say I've been holding out for this all season. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I thought it might come soon. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Well, as far as what
0: Jamie and Lord Walder could be discussing, because they won't be discussing Arya. Um, Although it's interesting to note if Arya somehow pops up and kills Lord Walder, and it's kind of far-fetched for Jaime to, to see that, to know that it's Arya. But <laughs> that would be interesting if Jaime discovers Arya's presence <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: somehow. Seems unlikely, though. But one thing that they could be discussing is the situation in the North. Like, this, people are going to hear about what happened. And Lord Walder, for all we know, hasn't heard what happened to his daughter is that his granddaughter or his daughter? I forget. Anyway, <laughs> his kin, <laughs> Fat Walda. So he might hear about the Vale Knights going north. He might hear about Jon Snow and Sansa. He might hear about Bolton. He might hear about all these things. And, and Jamie doesn't necessarily know these things either. So big open questions there. Very curious whether they'll even bring that up.
1: Yeah, we have um, another really interesting scene between Jon and Sansa where they say that they have to trust each other. They have so many enemies now. And for me, I, I see it as them having a conversation, reflecting on their childhoods. They're back in Winterfell. It would be weird for them not to be contemplative about how, what it was like back then. And I could see them talking about how they didn't trust each other back then. We need to trust each other. We have so many enemies now. Yeah. Whereas, Otherwise, it would seem weird for them to say now because they have fewer enemies now.
0: They well, maybe have they have control. more. I was thinking about that, and I kind of, I, I can see how he might think they have more. I can also see how think they have less, because if, if the South is now an enemy, that wasn't necessarily the case before.
1: If they've gotten, if they've, yeah, learned that, but yeah. I, I still lean towards them just saying now as in compared to four years ago. Yeah,
0: I kind of agree with that, too. I could see it either way. We'll have to see the rest of the context of that conversation, but it also seems very likely that they're going to bring up, why didn't you tell me about the Vale Knights? And that would be like, why, that might be what spurs the conversation in the first place. Yeah, Yeah. but here's another interesting reveal. Shay, tell Mm -hmm. us.
1: Um, Watchers on the Wall reported uh, a while back that there was a character, Fletcher. Uh, he is a fat, nobleman in his 60s. He has distinctive, rugged features, a northern accent, and a distinguished air. Our source says he has a stirring speech during which he unexpectedly shifts political al- allegiances. The
0: North remembers! Get hyped, so, folks. That's Manderly, probably. It makes
1: you think, though, what's he switching political allegiances to or from... If it's going to be in the finale, and it makes me think about John versus Sansa a little bit, but it also makes me think that it could be a speech in which he says, "I'm for you now,
0: not mm. the Boltons
1: or not the Lannisters." So I, I, I don't think it has to mean that, but it makes me think of John versus Sansa.
0: Yeah, it might. It might be. It might be related to the King in the North reveal if John, you know, if, mm. if that comes out somehow. It would be kind of quick for news to travel. Yeah, but, but so
1: as you can tell, we think it's Manderly. Yeah, uh, so that's very mannerly. exciting.
0: We get Manderly action. Mm-hmm. Okay, so next up on the trailers, we have John and Mel Alessandra and Davos. And, and Davos is just screaming, tell him what you did.
3: So, Boy, take us away on this one. Yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, the fact that Davos is confronting Mel is something that we've talked about before and expected to come to fruition. But I think it's the addition of John in the equation that makes this really intriguing. John wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for Mel. He might feel that he owes her something on some level. And she could also be very useful in the grand war to come against the White Walkers. But on the other hand, Mel has done something completely unforgivable. So this meeting between the three of them looks set to be a really compelling scene and anyone rooting for Mel should be very afraid for her future at this point. Uh, I think it would be a real shame if she's lived for so long, you know, centuries or what, whatever it is, uh, and is so set on facing the White Walkers only to die just before she can oppose them. But it's hard to see how she's going to get away from... Way with Burning Shireen, especially with Davos acting as the prosecution. I do offer, however, one sliver of hope for Mel. And that might lie in the fact that she told Arya a long time ago that they would meet again one day. How much faith we should put in a Mel prophecy from season three, I don't know, but it's worth bearing in mind anyway.
0: I have a little bit of an idea on this. Uh, maybe... John sends her away, rather than having her executed. Like you said, he's got reasons to be thankful for her, and maybe he just wants to banish her, and maybe that sets her off on a path of discovering Danny. Because still, at this point, Melisandre having no concept of Danny's existence is kind of a dangling, you know, plot line that could that needs to be tied at some point. That thread needs to be taken up at some point. So that's a possibility. I wonder, uh, maybe that could be it. Uh, I don't know how that would play out in the books. Mm-hmm. Comparing it to,
1: I mean, I mean, I could see John just saying, "Okay, I owe her a literal life debt, like mm. quite, quite ex- a life debt. Uh, she brought him back to life. I can't do anything against her."
0: Yeah, he might have to be. Yeah, he might just feel that obligated. It's, it's going to be tough for him, I think. Either way, mm-hmm. okay. So let's talk about Littlefinger. This is really big. We we have not only do we all predict that Littlefinger wants to marry Sansa. That's pretty obvious, but. It comes up, apparently, is exactly what we're going to see. We have Sansa saying, what do you want? And Littlefinger saying, I thought you knew what I wanted. And they're in the Godswood. And there's snow falling, which is a point we're going to get to in a minute. The falling of snow is uh, pretty big. And, of course, the episode title is The Winds of Winter. So it really fits in. But Littlefinger, at this point, has betrayed both Cersei and Elena. Though he assuaged Elena with Lancel. I goofed on that big time in the show only. I was thinking it was Olivar, which doesn't even make sense. Anyway, we all have brain farts from time There are time people to time.
1: who still think it's Gendry,
0: so. <laughs> Either way, um, he's also, you know, betrayed Cersei, but he also took care of Roose Bolton and talked about Sansa. But now if he tries to marry Sansa, he's going to have fully betrayed Cersei, which is interesting because he's... Expecting her to name him Warden of the North because he got that promise from her back last season So that's really interesting. It really it's really gonna depend on who knows what about what Littlefinger's been doing Who has the information at the right time and who can actually do anything about it because The South is in no position to make threats to the North right now Um. so yeah, Hmm. anyway back at the snow falling there's this shot of what appears to be a white raven in the trailer a hat tip to McCal t there. Uh, the winds of winter indeed are happening. And it's a show, a shot rather, of Winterfell in the distance. And there's a lot of snow, which there, as you guys know from watching the battle, there was not a lot of snow. The snow starts falling basically right during the final scene when Sansa's with Ramsay. When she approaches the dog cage, no snow. Some point during that scene, the snow starts, which I thought was a nice touch. So it's kind of setting up this next episode. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean,
1: it so was, it was, There was snow before.
0: Right, but just wasn't but. to this level. It was a yeah. lot more snow.
1: Yeah, but also it just makes good sense for there to be snow. That was at night and that yeah. was during the day during the battle, so it would snow at night. It's just colder at night. Yeah. But
0: um, but there's also you know, an upcoming what we know is gonna happen is there'll be a Sam scene. And this could be they they could be talking about, you know, because the white ravens are sent out by the citadel to announce the herald to herald the coming of winter. And so what we might we might see those two things tied together. We might see Sam's Maester scene, which we know it's coming in some form or another. Uh, him talking think, about winter and then we see the white raven blah 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 that could all
1: i think it'd be so cool to see sam talk to the maester the maester sends out the white ravens mm-hmm. and then we get to like follow the raven to Winterfell. oh that'd know? be really cool that'd Be a cool segue
0: that'd be awesome now speaking of sam and gilly uh, lord barone of the hall suggests a sam theory that i kind of like he suggests and uh, we agree at this part at least, that Sam can't stay long at Old Town. He doesn't have that option anymore because he stole Heartsbane from his father, quite obviously. So maybe instead he'll either try to get someone to come with him, say, hey, I need a full-fledged maitre to come back to the Wall. You know, that, They would do that. I mean, the Wall is supposed to have a maester and it doesn't now with Eamon's death. So maybe he you know, says, hey, get us a maester and then goes back with that maester. Or something like that. Maybe they even talk about Obsidian and how important it is and they could, you know, in the books... There's a lot of obsidian at Dragonstone. Stannis mines a lot of it himself, even, or orders it to be mined while he's gone. Maybe the show brings that back in. Dragonstone isn't exactly in the same situation it was in the show. It's much simpler. It's not under siege. It's, you know, it's just there.
1: I got a little distracted picturing Stannis mining. <laughs> <laughs> actually himself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, keep in mind that the Citadel, of course, is... I know a lot of what you guys are thinking when I mentioned the Citadel and going north and the White Walkers as they're very anti-magic in the books. Good place to point out that the Citadel in the show does not have to be anti-magic. Or if they are, it could be toned down quite a bit. But they don't have to be at all. I mean, sure, they're not going to be like, yay, magic. But they don't have to be like, we killed the dragons. That doesn't have to be a part of the show. So, even if that's even a part of the book. So that's, that's a conspiracy theory that's kind of widely regarded. I think it's got some merit to it. But it's certainly far from proven. Now... Uh, yeah, we, we get uh, So maybe this character that goes to the wall with Sam, if this even happens, it could be their version of Marwyn. You know, instead of Marwyn going to Danny, Marwyn goes straight to the wall. Eh, it's possible. Good theory. Uh, Varus, Olena, and Ilaria are apparently going to have some kind of meeting in this next episode, and it apparently takes place in Dorne. Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting. So
1: the reports were yeah. going back was that they were seen at the Dornish filming spot.
0: So we don't have anything new to report. We we mentioned that last week as well. So but but we have nothing new to add to that. But just reminder that it's going to happen.
3: Are
0: mm-hmm. we are talking about Arya in the Riverlands? So let's let's move on to our last segment. Let's talk about our worries. Um,
1: yeah. I'm most a lot of the characters in King's Landing. I'm not. I'm. I think they might die or going to die, but I'm not actually worried about them, <laughs> Yeah, to be you won't honest. mind them like, dying. I don't <laughs> care about Lancell. Ansel creeps me out. Uh, <laughs> but Marjorie, I think she very well could die, and I'm pretty worried about her dying. Um, especially, I mean, we have Elena to rule the Reach effectively, mm-hmm. so we have our Lady Quotia, Quota. Quota. Right
0: and there. Marjorie as well, you know, is Natalie Dormer's of. Not like a huge actress, but she's, you know, on the bigger end of popularity and cutting her out might save them a, bu- a little budget, you know. Um, and if they're going to kill her, it would make sense to do it in this last episode because just like Lord Walder, if Arya does it, it would at least make sense for budgetary reasons because then they don't have to cast David Bradley next season, which, mm-hmm. you know, that just costs more. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so Marjorie, good call, definite chance that she's killed. Now, here's an interesting thing about Loras. Loris is, uh, uh, the idea that Loras could die... Or at least get badly burned by wildfire, but surviving—that could parallel what happens to him in the books. We hear that his—he, you know, stormed Dragonstone, got badly burned by boiling oil, got shot by a crossbow, hit by a mace. Hat tip to her Don Coots for that, because that's—we uh, always look for ways where the show and book can kind of, when they get off from each other, when they come back together, it's good to look for those opportunities. Now, a very good opportunity for that.
1: That when Aziz says Loras was hit by a mace, his father was not abusive. <laughs>
0: But <laughs> good one good one we can't we can't ever let a pun slide when we see it that's our that's our game Melisandre we talked about the possibility of of her being in danger Littlefinger as well potentially you know he's going to make his move but Sansa's not going to want to <laughs> so I don't see her just killing him
3: but hey do you think this is darker to get a, do you think that we're going to get a wedding proposal yeah yeah I do a straight-up proposal. And you're sure that Sansa's going to say no? I'm not sure she's going to say sure no. I'm not sure
1: she's going to say no. I'm not sure at all. I think she might say yes.
3: I'm sure she doesn't want mm. to, No, all. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think she wants
1: to marry him. But, uh, yeah, uh, depending on how things go down, I could see her thinking it's the smartest choice for her.
3: Yeah, Especially if she's... I, I, I was just thinking about it, and I thought, you know, I can see it happening as much as I don't want it to happen. I can... I can see it being a forward move for Sansa in her Game of Thrones or whatever she's doing, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Because if she's maneuvering, if she's making moves, if she wants to take, you know, get primacy over Jon, Littlefinger is a good ally for that, as terrible as allying with him in general is. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, High Sparrow, odds of his death seem pretty high. Jonathan is another kind of expensive actor, so getting, you know, that's another benefit to them taking care about of this him, now. Though. Yeah, no one's like, damn, they killed the high sparrow. No. Some people
1: like him a lot. Yeah, some
0: people do. Like his act, I mean the actor's fantastic. Yeah. That's a good reason to want him around. But <laughs> it does seem like they're gonna have to move past this at some point, and this is as good a time as any. No more monologues. Yeah. <laughs> 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 now, Kevin and Pisel, that's another possibility. We've still got the we there's a scene with Little Bird stabbing someone—that's been in the trailer since the beginning of the season—we have yet to see that. Kevin Andor, Picel in danger seems not unlikely, so we'll have to see about that.
1: I wonder if Mace is still in. Going to be—I mean, his son's in the trial. I wonder if Mace will be in there.
0: too. Yeah, Mace is around. Olena's out of danger for now, yeah, but Mace—yeah—he could die too yeah that'd be that'd be uh, you know that I like Mesa base <laughs> I like him in the show I don't like him in the books he's horrible yeah. in the books yeah. <laughs> I mean there's far worse in the books than him, but it's easy to dislike him <laughs> so as far as armored and plot mm, pretty much everyone in the north besides the ones we mentioned like Littlefinger I think are safe like Sansa no way John, no way Jamie and Cersei I think they're safe too Tormund, I think for now he survived. That's great. We I predicted he would survive. I had him on my armored and plot last week. Wasn't super confident, but I was pretty confident. Glad to see he's around. And I think everyone in Marine is safe until next season. There's like no conflict left there that's yeah. violent, as far as we know. It doesn't maybe something will pop up, but they all seem safe. So Any other anything to add to that, guys? Armored
1: and plot is Arya.
0: Yeah, Arya, you're right. Yeah, I didn't even mention or... her, but that's that's almost yeah, That's as obvious as any of them. I, guess. I don't. I
1: know nothing's gonna happen. As like, I don't even think we're gonna see the brother without banners again. And Agree. Brandon Podrick. I don't know that we'll see them again. And I, I think they're kind of safe. Be there too. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think it'll just be a lot of death in King's Landing next episode.
0: Yeah. Big explosion.
1: and, and some Freys. Things will get or at wild. Least
0: <laughs> yeah, and some Freys, maybe. Yeah, or a fray, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I guess that wraps up our episode. Once again, we'll be back tomorrow with our Q and A and we appreciate all the questions that y'all have said in there so far. Definitely an opportunity to add some more questions and upvote the ones that are there. Mm -hmm. Thanks Uh, again. I'm sorry?
1: I just want to give a quick shout-out to Urban Flowerpot, who who sent us a bunch of, like, um, fridge magnets or fridge sizzle Frigils. Frigils. (laughs) Uh, This is what he came up with, and this uh, Stark necklace, which allowed me to rock the Starks, Um, and a Manderly Merman- uh, tail. So I'm going to have that for next week. Yeah. Hopefully we get the, ma- the
0: man. <laughs> That'll be great. Uh, thank you. Yes, thank you very much for that. You know, we always we we certainly appreciate feedback from everyone and gifts. Of course, <laughs> we appreciate those <laughs> too. <laughs> so everyone certainly feel free to send in your comments, questions, and concerns, and anything we might have missed. Put it in the Q and A for tomorrow, or send it to us via any of the other methods: Twitter, Facebook, Patreon or regular email, WesterosHistory at gmail.com. Thanks again, Radio Westeros, for joining us today. Lots of great thoughts, a lot of incredible insights. I think people are very going to have a lot of things to take away from this from our review today.
3: Yeah, thanks. It's been it's been great today. It's very enjoyable. Uh, find us at RadioWesteros.com for uh, book-only podcasts or check out our YouTube channel at Radio Westeros. Cheers.
0: Alright, right, so on behalf of everyone, thanks again. Valar, Battle of the Bastarduses. Valar, Winds of Winteris. See you next week. Get excited, last episode coming up. Adios, folks.